And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the uh, case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live tonight, thank goodness, because the internet is working, from the land of enchantment, New Mexico, where for the last, oh, what is it, uh, 10, 15 days, the temperatures have been above 100 degrees, which is like 20 degrees uh, warmer than it should normally be for this time of year. And the infrastructure out here, sorry to say, was not built for what's coming and is only going to get worse, which is uh, why they're going to about to spend a lot of money doing things with infrastructure all over the country, and including here in New Mexico. So hopefully our shows will become more regular because of a much more reliable uh, Internet and other surrounding infrastructure. We have some really exciting news to talk about tonight. Next Wednesday, the um, House Oversight and Appropriations Committee, which, of course, because of the way the election turned out in the House, is chaired by a Democrat, Representative uh, Comer, is going to hold what could be the most interesting public UFO hearings in the last what, 50 years, something like that, since uh, Gerald Ford's hearings uh, in the House back in 19, I believe it was 66, that uh, Gerald Ford ultimately to become the, um, uh, to become president of the United States, uh, appointed by Richard Nixon, um, was was chairman of a key committee in the House at that time. He was a congressman from Michigan, and he held very interesting Um, watershed hearings, which basically dismissed the whole idea of UFOs or ET spacecraft or extraterrestrials or things that go bump in the night that are not uh, normal but are anomalous for decades. And next Wednesday afternoon, or is it morning? I forget. Um, The House Committee, this House Committee, Key Committee, Um, chaired by a Republican, because this is a remarkably um, bicameral and bilateral um, subject, which it should be, because, you know, it's affecting Republicans and Democrats and independents equally, if you are people, and they are. It's going to hold its next hearings with three witnesses, one of whom is on record, uh, apparently with classified evidence which I will uh, talk to uh, C. Bassett a bit more in a few minutes uh, to verify that that statement, which I saw somewhere in print, which, of course, is now why we're having public hearings in the House, because this military veteran, uh, ex-military, he's now retired, who was part of the Afghanistan war, has testified both on, on in public and media, Um, And apparently privately to uh, committees in the Senate that um, he is witness to the fact that for decades, the U.S. government has had in its possession not only crashed, quote, uh, spaceships, UFOs, but also derivative technology, which runs the gamut from anti-gravity to, uh, uh, you know, infinite energy production without 3D consequences, i.e. pollution, 
extraordinary advances in biomedical technology, uh, life extension, disease. Con in other words, there isn't a field of science that the in crowd apparently has not had access to, has been researching, and is about to openly, publicly attest to in terms of the witnesses that are part of this hearing uh, next Wednesday. And that's why tonight I invited two very interesting people, an observationalist and a pol political uh, theorist, namely uh, Wilbur Allen and Stephen Bassett, to address respectively tonight, where are we? And uh, while we're waiting for Stephen to join us, apparently there's some kind of communications problem with uh, Washington. Of course, of course. All right. Um, let me introduce uh, Wilbur Allen. UFO researcher and contactee, Dr. Wilbur Allen, who has forensically documented sightings and anomalies at uh, ufodc.com, is going to discuss NASA's confirmation of the existence of hidden portals in the Earth's magnetic field, among many other things we're going to talk about tonight. He will relate these portals to what are colloquially known as wormholes, and he believes, based on observation, that this means that extraterrestrial craft can travel into our world and between dimensions almost at will. These aforementioned wormholes are associated in uh, uh, Allen's model with the Earth's north and south poles, and he infers that it is very likely that um, Admiral Byrd, during his polar expeditions, particularly to the South Pole, um, was seeing ET craft traveling in and out of the South Polar wormhole during his uh, expeditions, more than one. Uh, most interesting, of course, was uh, so-called Project High Jump, which may contain an Emily Dickinson pun, because if you go through a wormhole, what do you do? You jump from one point in space, 3D space, to another. So was high jump a cute Dickinsonian code for what uh, Bird knew he would find when he got there? Anyway, um, you can read more about the wormholes on the website. Uh, the most interesting thing to me, because it's not theoretical, it's practical and visual, is that uh, Wilbur has documented frequent UFO activity over Washington, D.C., on film, on video, on slow motion video, on parallactic video. I mean, real data, real evidence. And that there is likely a base for these crafts somewhere near Washington, if not even closer to the White House itself, which of course is a very, very controversial assertion. So without further ado, let me bring on Dr. I've never called him doctor before, Dr. Wilbur Allen. You're gonna have to be quiet. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Thank you for having me, Richard. Well, I'm so glad to have you back because uh, I've heard all kinds of uh, bizarre rumors a la Mark Twain, and I wanted to get you on uh, in this extraordinary hinge point in history because, frankly, Indeed. I believe that after next week, this entire conversation at a public level is going to be, you know, at a whole different public consciousness level 
than it is tonight. So Absolutely. why don't you why don't you start by giving us your thoughts on a much overworked word disclosure because we're in the middle of it right now. I did a five-year research study in various locations of the United States, and I set up some rather interesting technology. Um, I created spatial scan technology, which enabled me to scan space in high-definition 4K and created a uh, camera system and lens system from existing technology. The research that I conducted throughout the United States clearly indicated that the objects that we're talking about are inundating our airspace. The problem is the objects exist in invisibility, and we can't see them, but they're there, and my camera system documented them. So you mean ordinary human vision, they're shielded. But if you have the right filters on, if you have the right filters on the camera, you can see them? They they exist in infrared 470 nanometers. Ah, so they may be invisible to to uh, optical wavelengths, but they're glowing thermally in the infrared. The, they, the, the data that I documented clearly indicates that these objects are indeed invisible, however, detectable in infrared 470 nanometers. Hmm. Which is just beyond the red end of the visible light spectrum. So that it's not thermal, it's reflecting infrared. Absolutely, absolutely. Invisibility, we can't see them. Our eyes are limited. And our eyes are limited to uh, ISO 0 and ISO 800 nocturnally, while the objects I documented were documented at ISO 208-800-409-600, which humans cannot see into. Hmm. So what do you think is going on politically, given that you live near Washington and you've been there, you know, including working at the ABC and in and out access freely during the Reagan years to the White House itself? Are we really at what I think is this coming hinge point? I am not really sure because I did reach out to Congressman Comer and I did not get a response from him. So it's interesting um, I'm presenting to them physical evidence which indicates clearly our airspace is not our airspace. Well, could that just be that they're overwhelmed with lots of emails from people that are interested? I physically called their offices and, and introduced myself and my credentials and my research, and I've got no response from Congress. Hmm. Okay. So – what is your inference from that, that they don't want outside input or that it's a carefully controlled message, citizen science need not apply? Uh, carefully controlled citizen science not apply. Hmm. Now, do you think that's a foregone conclusion or is there a way to get around this? I am not sure. I'm reaching out to other congressmen and the Senate Intelligence Committee for an oversight on um, – UFOs, which are supposedly uh, listed in the internet, and it, indeed, uh, I got no response from any of the political uh, Congress people associated with these research sites. Hmm. Have you reached out to Rubio, Senator Rubio from Florida, or Senator Gillibrand from uh, New York in the I Senate? I did not. I did not, but I definitely will definitely uh, reach out to those congressmen. 
Okay, I, I, obviously at some point I'm going to bring Stephen in here, but I want to continue on your work, which has been primarily in the observational field and developing technology, as you just you know alluded to, that can Absolutely. see these these objects, these craft, even if they're not visible to the unaided human eye. Um, Absolutely. Back in 1952, there was this classic July appearance of UFOs over the, over Washington for you know, weeks, days at a time, weeks, and they would play, you know, tag with the military aircraft sent up to try to rendezvous with them. And they appeared on radar and disappeared on radar and all that. And they eventually came up over the White House and they even got Truman involved. And it was that that summer, that July, where Truman apparently issued his famous shoot down order. And that raises all kinds of a can of worms. Uh, but no one has really paid attention at least publicly, to the idea of UFOs over Washington now, except Dr. Wilbur Allen, who has data. Why don't you start at the beginning and talk about how you've been documenting these fellows coming and going with absolute you know, freedom and in- incredible rhythmic precision for decades? I, I set up my equipment. Magnetically, I aligned my telescopes precisely to magnetic north. So each telescope is aligned correctly when I use or when I went to various research sites to do uh, scanning of space. And what was interesting was uh, what I documented. And and running this telescope, I would set my telescope up to document space specifically. And in documenting space, I would document these objects appear into my video, not fly into the video. They would appear into the video, fly through, and then disappear. So it indicated to me that these objects are using some kind of portal to enter our airspace. Wow. So they're either coming through a hyperdimension from another point in 3D or... They're coming and going between dimensions because um, that's their technology and they're not in this space at all. That that is indeed the case. They're they're not cloaked. They're not cloaked. If they were cloaked, it would be different because I would see the object through the air distortion around it. Yeah, Wolver, can you move move the mic just a little bit away from your mouth because we're getting breathy sounds. Okay, how about now? Better, keep talking. Now, the objects would appear physically into the airspace, and it was interesting, was that the objects were the Tic Tacs encountered by the USS Nimitz in 2004. Now, wait, 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 hang on, hang on. You mean in your cameras, in your telescope technology, you had enough resolution, so these are not just bright dots or points of light, they're literally no, structured are, craft you're seeing in detail. Tic Tacs, Tic Tacs, Tic Tacs, the same Tic Tacs encountered by the USS Nimitz. I passed the data through uh, Chief Kevin Day. He was the uh, radar chief on board the USS Nimitz during the time of the encounter when they encountered the Tic Tacs in 2004. And Chief Day was concurring with my evidence, indicating to me that the objects were indeed the same objects that were encountered by the Nimitz. 
Well, technically, do we know they're the same or they just look the same? Um, well, what's interesting, it's, it's I'm using the word tic-tac um, definitively because each of the objects that I documented was specifically different in shape and size. But the one consistency associated to the objects that were documented was their shape. And their shape was uniform and consistent with what uh, the Nimitz encountered as Tic Tacs. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting circumstantial evidence that maybe the same folks doing both. Um, it, it is indeed. But what's interesting is each of the objects that I documented was different. And in fact, I got uh, 3,000 samples of 3,000 samples. Ten I can match, but the rest I cannot. Okay, I'm looking at your items tonight, and I don't see any images of uh, Tic Tac. You you have you have to go to you have to go to my uh, uh, YouTube channel, Dr. Wilbur Allen YouTube. Okay. All the, all the evidence is there. Do we have a link uh, for that, Keith? Near his bio. Let me go look. Um, I see ufodc.com. Is that yes. the website? That's his website. That's the website. Okay, so that's so, so the YouTube channel. Oh, so do we have a separate YouTube channel posted? I don't see. Um, I'm not sure, but you can you can Google Dr. Wilbur Allen YouTube. It'll take you to. Well, Keith can also put it up so that it's one-stop shopping. You know, we try to make it easy. Exactly. So. Exactly. Okay, so so you have enough resolution um, for those of us that clearly, have, who clear have, resolution to okay, see them. Okay, how much of the frame does each object uh, occupy? I would say less than ten uh, percent, but I used three uh, D Max to take my four K videos um, into three D Max, which is a uh, 4K, 64-bit uh, uh, 3D software, and I used virtual cameras to track the objects in my frames, so I was able to do a clear analysis of each of the objects um, in 3D Max. Okay. I'm getting a, a note here from Robert, who's going to join us in a little while, that what I'm asking for is an item number two? No, it can't be. Um, uh, let me click on this. Okay, that's the that's the streak, which I presume is uh, the time it took for the object to move and the shutter speed. No, used. no, those those streaks those streaks are are objects that my camera documented, and you're looking at the object as the space the spacecraft itself. It was initially um, documented by NASA Groman during Project Echo in eight uh, twelve nineteen sixty. So this is a real craft frozen uh, that looks yes. like a long colored red, red streak. There's also an article associated to it uh, in 1960 in which uh, people detected and saw red objects in our airspace. And how big in the 1960s. sky would this appear in terms of, let's say, a full moon? Um, repeat that question. How big in the sky would this appear in Optically, like angular width, as, like as like, you, a, like a full moon. As you see it in the frame, as you see it in the frame, that's how big it was. Yeah, but we can't tell intrinsic size. In other words, is it a tiny portion of the moon? Is it several oh, no, degrees no. across? It, it it would be the same size as the moon. Half a degree. Yes. 
Al, did it just pop into space or did it drift in or it, it warped by. It warped by, and I recorded that event at 60 frames per second. And you see clearly that is the frame extracted from the video that was captured during that time. I got several red objects. So these objects, say, which are linear, say, red, yes, appear yes. and disappear in our space, obviously at will, but they don't track they, across the sky. They warp by so fast that if you blink, you would not see it. My, my. Now, you say sites across the country. I know that you lived in D.C. for many, many, many years and documented a whole bunch of bizarre stuff, including around the Capitol and the White House. But where else do you have your ground stations? In other words, how much of the country have you been able to uh, to, to cover? I went through uh, a few states. One of the states that was really interesting was Florida. When I saw my telescopes in Florida, I got uh, a plethora of data associated to first the Tic Tacs and then a plethora of data associated to the red streaks. And that's what made it all interesting. If you go to my YouTube channel, Dr. Wilbur Allen YouTube, all of the data is there in high definition 4K. You can clearly see these objects. You know, I'm wondering if the, because if these are real physical vehicles, they're incredibly, you know, narrow and very long. Yes, I was my, my my conclusion indicates that these objects are approximately uh, 30 to 50 miles long. Oh, my God. Now, when you say you had multiple cameras, i.e. telescopes, did you set them up so you could do stereo? In other words, you have the same uh, yes. part of the sky yes. in, in the same field yes, of view? Stereo, there's stereoscopic. So you can literally get a distance parallactically and therefore give us an exact size. 50 miles? Exactly. How high I, up? I had, Over how high I up? One, I, had, I had one camera and one telescope set for 250 miles, and the other camera, which was uh, one, the camera on the telescope was full-spectrum infrared, and an identical camera that was a conventional light camera, which was uh, the same as human vision. And the human vision camera saw absolutely nothing, while the infrared camera detected them clearly. You know, I just had a weird thought. If we're dealing with a technology which can literally go between dimensions and time is flowing at a different rate in other dimensions than in our 3D, which I have separate data on, you might be looking at some kind of incredibly red-shifted field effect and not the real vehicle at all, but a geometric topological twist of the field around the vehicle, which is red-shifting light to an intense degree. I have other samples, and the other samples were not red. They were white streaks of light. Oh. And they had the same energy in terms of when they flew by. They would walk by. And, again, understand I was filming at 60 frames per second, so the camera was able to clearly uh, freeze them as they walked by. But I would say the the altitude in which these objects were warping by was approximately 250 miles in our atmosphere. Oh, my. So they're well up in low Earth orbit. 
well up in, in lower Yeah, because that's about the altitude of the, of the uh, International Space Station, 260 miles. It's, it's, it's that, and, and the space station did indeed detect them. If Wait listeners it. click on the picture or the URL, they will go to. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Keith just was able to add channel. the uh, add the YouTube it's link. Already, it was already there. Oh, okay. All they have to do is click on the picture or the URL. It'll take you to UFO DC, his YouTube channel. Yes, and there's there's a sample. There's an illustration from the Holy Bible, and it shows some nomads in the desert, and their hands are up, and there's a tubular shape object with a force field around it sitting there in space. And that is indeed the same object that was in the days of Jesus recorded in real time in 2020 as I was doing research um, in a abstract location in Virginia near Richmond. We keep talking about these things like their craft, like their vehicles, like they're like we build. Is it possible we're looking at pure consciousness I'm 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 using a, a document that was recorded by NASA Groman during Project Echo, and NASA Groman during Project Echo de- detected and recorded the same objects in space. They're exactly the same as what I'm documenting, except in black and white. But if they're but projections it's, it's between dimensions. If we think of them as, you know, nuts and bolts vehicles as opposed to some extraordinarily advanced projection, hyperdimensional technology where visitors don't have to physically come through, they project something else that we would think of as a field in order to understand what we're about and who we are and, and whyever they're here, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, are we not limiting ourselves by thinking in terms of clunky craft? like the Tic Tacs, which appear to be vehicles, but this appears to be something much more on the order of energy or information I, I, or quantum I, entanglement or something. I indicated that the Tic Tacs are organisms of some sort. Oh, so you think they could be too? uniquely different. Exactly, exactly. Why would that make them, why would that make them organisms if they're different? I had, uh, as I mentioned, a collection of 3,000 4K UK videos. I'm sorry, not UK, but 4K videos. And in the Tic Tac documentation, each of them was uniquely different. There were some that had extreme power output, while the others did not have an energy output as, as immense as the objects that I'm mentioning. One of the things that was interesting was the energy field around these objects was rotating in a clockwise manner. So I determined that. It was clearly visible in the 4K samples that I recorded. Hmm. When you say rotating clockwise, that's like look if you're looking down on the north pole of the object, it would rotate to the right as opposed to, to the left? Indeed, indeed. And you could see that clearly in the videos. Um, as I mentioned, I recorded them at 60 frames per second. And it's indeed documented the field associated to each of these objects, which is uniquely different. As I, as I said, I got 3,000 samples, and I can't match them. There, There's one specifically that I can match, and I do have 10 uh, different versions of it recorded on 10 different occasions. And on each occasion, this specific object had an immense energy field, which my cameras detected. Wow. 
Okay, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. Um, in this segment, anything you want to t- bring up that we have like a minute or so until we bring on Steve after the bottom of the hour? Um, actually, I would like to ask everyone to Google Dr. Wilbur Allen YouTube and look at the absolutely strange documentation that I posted on my YouTube channel. Wow, fascinating. Okay, um, our first guest of the evening, Dr. Wilbur Allen, who, as I said, has been a resident of D.C. for many, many years. And then I think he moved to the suburbs, and then he moved somewhere else, and he's back in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., has been documenting long after 1952 the remarkable appearance and disappearance from someplace else, some warp field, some hyperdimensional connection, extraordinary objects doing extraordinary things, and some of them may be conscious, energy beings, whatever. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. everyone on this Sunday night, July 23rd, no, what is today, July 23rd of 2023. My guest this morning, my first guest was uh, Dr. Wilbur Allen, who is, of course, still with us. I'm going to bring on now um, uh, uh, Stephen Bassett, because Stephen has been at this uh, disclosure um, apex for literally decades. probably almost as long as I've been looking at the idea of artifacts elsewhere in the solar system. 
So let me give you a little background on Stephen. He is the uh, political activist and disclosure advocate and executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, which was founded by Stephen back in 1996 to end a government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. Stephen has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, <clears throat> which is defined as the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence engaging currently the human race. Stephen has lectured around the world on the implications politically of UAP ET phenomena and has given over 1,200 radio and television interviews. I, I think that exceeds my number. I think that's uh, bigger than what I've been doing. PRG's advocacy group has been extensively covered by all the national international media, including CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, The Washington Post, and of course, the old gray lady herself, the New York Times. And you can read the rest of uh, Stephen's background, including uh, data on the uh, 2013 citizen hearing on disclosure that he masterminded at the National Press Club. So without further ado, Stephen, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Pretty interesting times, eh? Yeah, well, we're in the last weeks of the truth embargo, 76 <laughs> years on. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, my God. So where do you want to begin? It's like drinking from a fire hose and that old cliche. I'm not urging the media, which is just intense. Um, articles are pouring out. And I triage the best, the ones I think that have reasonably good venues and what have you. And I, I can barely get them loaded up fast enough. Uh, the stigma is virtually gone. There's just no stigma anymore. In fact, the UAP term, which was brought into play specifically to make it easier for journalists and politicians and others who are worried about that stigma to be able to refer to the issue and talk about it. Simple thing, nothing talking about that. <laughs> Saying the word UFO was like dropping a, you know, a turd in the punch bowl in most cases. So UAP made it uh, easier, and that was good. And there's other language that we've tried to in introduce that would make it easier for mainstream people to address this issue so we could move towards disclosure. However, UFO is back. Uh, UFO is in all the articles, it's in all the headlines, and so it, it didn't take long for that term to be, how would you say, re rejuvenated, meaning it's okay to say UFO now. Uh, the stigma is gone, and that's just one of many reasons why I'm convinced the truth embargo is just about done. What are your expectations for next week for this House hearing? If I'm not uh, in error... This is the second House hearing. The first was under the Intelligence Committee. This is the first more general congressional oversight and appropriations. And the witness, one of the witnesses I know they've got, is this new darling of the uh, UFO set, uh, an ex-military veteran from uh, Afghanistan who said forthrightly <clears throat> in all kinds of venues, as I said in my opening, that the U.S. government has had disks. They've had technology, they've had access, they've figured things out, and none of it has leaked out officially into public domain, except there's going to be a guy that you, Stephen Bassett, forecast would be the model, impeccable military veteran discussing unbelievable things 
that he has personally been involved with? Close. Uh, first of all, I would take issue with calling him the do- darling of the UFO set. I, I, I think. That well, currently, UFO. you know, these things go in uh, phase, I, phases. I, I, just, I just don't like to. I just don't like that phrase. Uh, he is a, uh, a a major witness, but he also is a whistleblower. And we're referring to David Grush. And the reason he's a whistleblower is because he calls himself that. And when he came forward, when he came forward earlier, two years ago, he was trying to report what he was learning as a member of the UAP task force, which apparently he took his job seriously. He was being given information, people inside government reporting to him. Uh, he was on the UAP task force. So, of course, they were. And what he was hearing was quite startling. He was getting information from individuals who he knew to be associated with uh, significant classified programs, possibly full use apps, or certainly a SAP, special access program. And they were informing him about the fact that the U.S. government has, and we know we've known this for years, that people that do the work out in the public, public sector have crashed vehicles, have a number of them, as well as bodies. He took that information to uh, to uh, the Congress, I think, or to, to some of the committees, uh, or exactly which one. The, the details are not clear, but he, he went. Well, my information reported. says it was the Senate committees, not the House. Again, it could have been a Senate committee. Okay, so he reports it. Uh, so he's doing his job. Ah, but then apparently he kind of steps over the line. In other words, what's going on now has certain protocols. And he kind of got out in front of his skis. So he started getting grief. Now, this goes back about two years. We're only talking 2021, but the briefings have been going on at that point for almost a year or longer. So there's a lot of information being passed to members of the Senate committees and whatever. God knows how much, how many conversations, how many meetings have taken place. We don't know. But again, that they're not, they're not publicized. But he started getting grief uh, back at, uh, I guess, the OAP task force. He got angry about it. And so he went to the IG. I believe he went directly to the IG of intelligence. This is, this is the, the inspector general, which is a legal office right. in, in most U.S. government branches where you report wrongdoing. It's an independent entity that is designed to operate separate from the, uh, the entity, whether it's the DOD or the intelligence community, um, uh, in dealing with matters that might be uh, of concern. So it's, it's independent. So he, he went to at least the IG, Inspector General of the, of the Intelligence Community, possibly also the Inspector General of the DOD, and he complained. And so he filed a formal complaint. I am being harassed. And at that point, at some point, he might have indicated that he felt the policy of withholding this information from the people was illegal. At that point, of course, he makes himself a whistleblower, whether he thinks he is or not. Now, where it gets really interesting is the individual who stepped forward to represent him to the intelligence community inspector general was the former inspector general of the intelligence community. I think his name was McCullough. He was working for, I think, what, uh, the Rose Law Firm, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is a non-trivial point. Uh, if, if David Grush is anything but 
uh, a responsible, well-known, and vetted member of the uh, military intelligence community, there's no way the former inspector general steps forward to represent him. And his complaint was received, and it was considered a legal concern. And we assume wait, wait, wait. The he, Rose Law Firm isn't that the same firm that Hillary and Bill worked for in Arkansas? I don't know. I How don't, many Rose Law I Firms doubt, can there be? I, again, I, and I Rose is a very symbolic, you know, Rosicrucian occult information kind of connection. That's not my world, Dick. You know that. No, that's mine. So yes. Let me continue. Let me continue. So he. Um, He's, he's gets some relief back at the UAP task force, but it doesn't last. And so now he's getting further angry. He's, in other words, the, the people working in your near surround may be informed. Okay, look, uh, don't hassle that person. This is not acceptable, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. So they don't. Does that mean you can't be harassed? Not in this world. I mean, there are so many ways that you can threaten people anonymously. You can harangue them and what have you, and they don't even know who you are. So apparently he was continuing to get that. And so eventually he had enough. And he made the decision, not, not only because he was being harassed uh, and or threatened, and, but, but also because he does feel that this policy, the truth embargo, is illegal. I, you know, my view is it is not illegal, though obviously I want it to end. Uh, he made the decision to go public as a full-blown whistleblower, go to the media, tell his story, and he did with a bang. Uh, July 5, debrief article, plus, of course, his interview with uh, Ross Colzard, the excellent journalist on News Nation, which had already done a number of programs in which they were discussing this issue, particularly with Congressman Tim Burchett. And so this dropped like a bomb on June, June the 5th. And so, all right, since then... I can sense there's a whole lot of scrambling going on. In other words, there was a kind of process that was underway that, that was moving forward with some control, and it was not too uncomfortable. Everybody's kind of happy with it. And all of a sudden, Grush accelerates the thing. And so what has happened since July the 5th is, as near as I can tell, uh, the House, which is run by the Republicans, uh, and House committees, which are chaired by the Republicans, have been watching the Senate dominate this issue mm. for three years. Dominate it. Uh, the major legislation language is pretty much all from senators. Gillibrand, Warner, Fitzgerald. All right. Uh, and they're getting all the attention. They're getting all the action. I mean, there was some tension to Guillegos, uh, Ruben Diego's language. He's a House member. Uh, we did have a briefing. It was conducted by Andrew Carson's subcommittee. Not a hearing, but a briefing. But overall, it's the Senate Intel Committee. And so they decided, look, uh, this thing is now out there. The issue of non-human bodies and non-human technology is now out there. And we're not potted plants, and so we're going to make our move. And the person who decided to do that was James Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee. He decided, I'm going to hold a hearing, and I'm going to schedule it for July the 26th, which happens to be just two days before the Congress hmm. uh, goes into uh, recess, meaning that this hearing is going to happen, and then there's nothing going to follow it for a whole 30-some days, and, and we're going to get a whole lot of press and a whole lot of attention. Smooth move. He assigns the task of putting the hearing together 
not surprisingly, to Tim Burchett, who has been all over the media for like two months, uh, talking about the fact that ETs are here, technology is here. He's not shy about it at all. He has stepped out way in front of this issue. Uh, others could have done so, but Tim did. Now, he, is, he was not a well-known congressman. He is very conservative from Tennessee. But nevertheless, he stepped forward in the issue. He's remained very nonpartisan about it. He's not trying to politicize it. He's gotten more press in the last two months than his entire previous <laughs> political career. Anyway, let's hold he up there. and I, Guys, I, I need to bring Wilbur back in because he can only stay with us till the top of the hour. Wilbur, you have been living and documenting the UFO activity over the nation's capital where these congressional folks hang out a lot. Have you ever had face-to-face conversations with congressmen, shown them your data, and had any response prior to this new set of developments coming up next week? I reached out to Congress and all of the intelligence oversight committees regarding uh, UFO, UFO, UAP activity in our airspace, and I sent them links. I emailed them. Well, with physical samples, and I got absolutely no response from Congress. In what time frame did, did you do this? Um, I did this, in fact, a week ago. Oh, so we're in AD, and they're not responding. Is it possible, Stephen, it's simply because they haven't got a setup yet for public input? They're still managing the release in an in, in-house fashion? No, that's not what's going on. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, let me let me mention that uh, Will is one of countless numbers of truth warriors who have been trying to press this issue and move it forward for decades upon decades. Uh, obviously, the government has, has has thwarted all of those efforts. Uh, there have been, I don't know, perhaps as many as twenty or more efforts to get congressional hearings between. Now, and uh, back to 1968, they've all been blocked, all failed. There have been people up on the Hill repeatedly. Nothing happens until recently. But what is going on now is not about getting evidence and proving anything. The government knows about the ET presence. They know who they are. They have their crash vehicles. They've been studying the tech for 70 years. This isn't about proving anything. And so there's not an interest in anybody coming up with proof or tech or something like that. what is going on now is they're going through the protocols and motions of doing the right thing, meaning this is what they should have done back in 58, uh, maybe 53, possibly uh, 65, uh, certainly 1993 and 96. This is what they should have done to end the truth embargo. They didn't do it. And so the truth embargo was very ripe. It's like one of those very ripe pieces of fruit in the kitchen that you literally have to throw out with with (laughs) gloves because it's so stinking the place up. So they're trying to, they have to end this truth embargo. And this is about ending the truth embargo. It's about going through the motions, getting witnesses, having them testify in front of uh, huge numbers of people uh, and viewers so that everybody's participating and then providing information via those witnesses, which are absolutely beyond a reasonable doubt, confirms ET presence. That allows the president to end the truth embargo. And then we go to the post-disclosure world. Once we're in the post-disclosure world, the work of people like Will and many of the others in the field, I believe, will not be ignored. Uh, I was, I'm was i sitting out my new office in D.C. right now. I've got, I don't know, four or five hundred books. I've got several hundred tapes, stuff going back 20, 30 years. And I'm looking at it, I'm reminded <laughs> of the vast amount of work that it was done 
over the last 60, 70 years by thousands of people, serious people without a lot of money, trying to document, trying to understand, and trying to then relate the, the truth about this issue. And one of the things I can say with confidence is that once the confirmation event takes place and we get disclosure from the president, I think most reasonable people will conclude that the vast majority of all of the, of the information, research, videos, documentaries, everything else that was generated by the general public going back to 1947, the vast majority of it is actually true. And therefore, it needs to be completely reviewed. There are obviously errors. There were obviously mistakes and some foolishness. But overall, they had it right. They had it right from the beginning. And so that needs to be reviewed, and my, one of my jobs post-disclosure is to make sure that happens. Well, I would think, given technologically where we are with global social media and everybody having a, a cell phone and everybody <clears throat> having a website and a blog and YouTube channel and whatever practically, that there's no way physically that they can censor a huge historical database where the public's going to go even if they're never called formally before any committee hearing, et cetera, there's no way that Hans Brinker can stop the flood that's about to occur once the credibility is established with hearings. I agree. Uh, wow. Obviously, they were, able to, they were <laughs> able to hold everything under control or back. Uh, for many, many decades. That's no longer the case. So if, and this is what I, you know, I've been up on the Hill. I've actually visited in the last four days in 94 degree heat, 56 mm -hmm. offices, uh, every member's office of the the uh, House Oversight Committee and every member's office of the Senate Intel Committee, chatting it up with the millennial staff, passing out cards, almost all the staff. They, they're solely down with the ET issue. Of, of course. course they are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and um, I, I believe that one of the messages I'm going to be giving as I get more access to Congress is, look, guys, you want you want you want to make friends and influence people. You want some votes. You want to have some good fun and times in this new world that's coming. You acknowledge the work of these people. You acknowledge all of the researchers and activists and documentarians and everybody else that put this together and fought against the truth embargo since '47. You 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 talk about giving them you know awards and acknowledgement and everything else. You do that, and I guarantee you this is going to be a much easier path for you post disclosure. That seems a good solid political science to me. Mm-hmm. So let me go back to Wilbur. Uh, Wilbur, can you be patient a little longer? Because if Steve is right, they're going to be ringing your phone off the hook in the next, uh, I would certainly say year and probably the next six months. Would, would you agree with that? Steve? I am. I am patient. I would, I would agree with Mr. Bassett um, and what he has said in association to uh, the work of us researchers. And, and I do believe at this point, Congress is, um, was at some point ignoring us, but now they can't ignore the fact that the physical data is indeed there. Steve, do we know whether Grush, is that the pronunciation of his last name? Yes. Do we know, Grush, or do we know whether he actually has display items, images, no. documents? No, no, no. no, what Grush has, and one of the reasons he was attacked by a couple of the last the bunkers out there that are trying to you know, be the last ones to make fools of themselves as the uh, truth embargo comes to an end is that he has secondhand. It's not firsthand testimony. He, but he's not somebody who's walking up the street. He was worse. So wait, when, when you say it's secondhand, meaning he didn't physically go up and touch a saucer somewhere at Area no. 51. No, 
He's, he's, he's assigned the UAP task force under the law that is set up that it was in the Senate bill that Rubio put together in 2020, the COVID bill. And so he's now over there. There wasn't a lot of staff. Everybody talked about that. It was just the early days. And they were complaining there's not enough staff. Well, he was one of the staff. And because he's on the UAP task force and there was a bill passed by the Senate intel, well, a bill passed and signed by the president, guess what? Some people contacted him and said, we have information. This is now, the NDAA, which said it's no longer illegal to report up the chain of command, your observations, et cetera, et cetera, in the military, yeah, not, uh, contractors, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's not – I think it's not clear to me exactly – I don't know when he was contacted by these, these people that are working in the SAFs or USAFs, whether it was before or after that second year of legislation, I think, that mm-hmm. – started to open things up, but whatever, he was contacted, and they told him. And, of course, he, he I think, clearly knew who they were, and he, he knew that they were legitimate. And so as far as he was concerned, unless he was being punked, unless he was being set up, that uh, he – this is profound information. He's been told that we've had multiple saucers. Well, hell, I know some researchers could have told him that 25 years ago, but that's okay. And so he then passes that information on, and then things start getting interesting. So now, my understanding is that the Senate Intel Committee has interviewed those individuals who spoke to him. Oh, the primary sources. The primary sources. And these are the kinds of witnesses. In other words, let me put it this way. The hearing on Wednesday, and I intend to be there come hell or high water, (laughs) um, is the opening act. And, you know, opening acts can be very good Yeah. to the big act. And the big act will probably be early September when Congress returns and it will be the Senate Intel Committee. This hearing on Wednesday is going to generate a great deal of media. I'm going to spend a whole rest of the week doing interviews and loading the, the links up on my, my print media archive site, which is just growing. I mean, it's just expanding. Uh, and it's going to generate a lot of press over the next 30 days. The Intel Committee hearing. If they bring in the witnesses, probably for a period of about two weeks, maybe two in the morning, two in the afternoon, and uh, over two weeks, that may, you could get possibly as many as uh, 20 witnesses. Those hearings will last no more than eight days, eight, nine, ten days, because the testimony that is going to be given to the House Intel Committee is going to set the world on fire. <laughs> and that is going to be the it, meaning that the president will be easily able to come forward and say, look. Remember, Biden has an ET artifact in the Oval Office from NASA. There you go. Yes. The president will be able to confirm the ET presence, and we get disclosure hopefully in September before this election gets further underway. That is my prediction for now. We'll see. Well, this is really interesting, and I want to give uh, Wilbur time here in the last five minutes or so of this this segment. Um, You got anything you want to add or wrap up or insert or anticipate? I would ask uh, the listening audience to go to my website, uh, ufodc.com, and Dr. Wilbur Allen YouTube, and look at the physical evidence that I was able to document with my telescopes in various locations of the United States. Well, I've seen some of them, and they really are. See, what's so interesting is you report completely independently from one of our guys in Arizona who has a private radio telescope, and we use his name is Jimmy Blanchett. We used it to transmit 
uh, what we called our Amuamua series of messages uh, last yes. winter. And Blanchett had a boresighted set of cameras, night vision, low light level cameras. And then right after he sent the transmission, objects, structured craft appeared out of nowhere, out of some other dimension, and sat in the field of view of the cameras and then were replaced by other craft, et cetera, et cetera, like a faster than light speed acknowledgement that whoever's out there heard what we were saying and was acknowledging with their visible presence. And this this was visible light imaging, not infrared. They are indeed using uh, spatial um, – um, uh, how can I describe it? it? There's nothing like that that humans have, but they are able to enter into our airspace as if they're entering through a spatial portal. Hmm. Okay. All right. We got a couple of minutes. Anything else you want to add? Um, no, they can actually, uh, again, I will mention, go to my website, ufodc.com, click on the images, and the images will take you to the specific chapters. Or they can go to my YouTube channel, Dr. Wilbur Allen, and look at the physical evidence that I documented in high-definition infrared. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I know that you've been facing some uh, personal challenges, and I'm frankly delighted to, to see you on video before we did the show and you look pretty damn good and I'm going to be on the phone separately with you with some background modalities which might absolutely impact in a very positive way your situation not a problem and all not I will all I will say is um, they are HD they are not normal uh, what you would consider to be uh, medical input so we will we will leave it there my guest this morning, my first guest was uh, Dr. Wilbur Allen. Steve Bassett is staying with us. I've got a million questions, Stephen, now that we're into the end game, and I can't wait till uh, we've got a clear runway to basically ask you a few interesting things. My guest this morning for the remaining uh, hour is going to be um, Steve Bassett. We will then be joined in the third hour of The Other Side of Midnight, for this July 23rd, Sunday, 2023, as history creakingly, agonizingly opens a door. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, the 23rd of July. July. Why do you, you interesting UFO things seem to congregate around July? Remember July was when the Roswell incident occurred? Remember July was when we landed on the moon? Um, July 20th is when um, Melania Trump came out with a set of NFTs commemorating for $75 apiece the Apollo Moon 11 landing 54 years ago this week. Literally, you're still in that window. And they returned to Earth uh, 54 years ago tomorrow tomorrow morning <clears throat> on the 24th of July 1969. All of this congregating in the seventh month the seventh tetrahedral, hyperdimensional, you know, symbolic Masonic month of July. Anyway, Stephen, I want to get back to you because I have a really important question to ask, maybe the most important of the entire evening. Uh, do you know whether these hearings of the House Oversight Committee are going to be televised? Yes. Ah. So C-SPAN will be doing its level best. So we might see you on C-SPAN. Are they going to take questions from the audience? No. No. Okay. Uh, I'm going to. I'm going to do my best to get that. I'm going to. I'm going to do my best to get the front row. But uh, I think if if you want to just go online and Google the hearing, and you, uh, in other words, the House Oversight Subcommittee hearing on UAP. Uh, and you can probably find there's going to be several ways. I know that I know that the, I think the, the, the house has is, is actually got a link to it uh, up there somewhere. So there's a number of ways to watch it now. Yeah, I think there's a link. Not, I, I think there's a link in the Newsweek story, which is my item number three tonight. Yeah. Uh, again, more uh, entities may decide to cover it. We'll see. I mean. This is this, this hearing is, is not that quite the sex appeal that that I'm, I was expecting. Uh, so I do not know to what extent. Well, but, but why why way. do you say that? Because I have just the opposite impression. It, it's just how can I put it? Well, first, it's it's a it's a little politicized <laughs> um, because that. It's it's the House basically trying to say, look, the Republican-controlled House wants. Yeah, to we're relevant. We're relevant. Yeah, yeah, and and so I just I don't feel I don't feel that energy, the, the kind of energy that you are gonna you will you will feel and see when the Senate Intel holds their hearing. I'm talking about the kind of energy around the hearings. Remember the Monica Lewinsky, the, the uh, uh, Watergate hearings. Uh, the energy was intense, and virtually every media entity was uh, was 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 filming this live. It was going on all over the world. Well, what, one of the, what this hearing has competing with it, of course, is a imminent Trump indictment for an insurrection against the United States of America. I mean, that that that's a tough hill to climb. 
I, the climate's not good. The that that is simply a thing. It's getting some coverage, but not a lot of coverage. It is a political kind of issue that sort of clouds the situation. But it's not what we're competing with really is is and what what could be more of impacting in terms of coverage or things like the Ukrainian war. I mean, something could happen there that would, the news would simply shift massively. But regardless, the energy is not there yet. They were heading in that direction. But it's not quite there, and so it'll. But I will note and I will check how many how many news entities went ahead and covered this live. Uh, and so if ABC or NBC were to cover it live, that would be the whole thing. That would be huge. Now, you you know that the January sixth hearings, you know you know the, 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 there was quite a bit of coverage on that. They were yes. very broad and yes. financial. Uh, it's not going to be at that level. Uh, well, the first one may not be, but don't you think this is only the opening gun? Of course, no. I'm, I'm anticipating. But you asked me about this hearing, and uh, and how how intense it would be. Well, if you have uh, if you had a guy like Grush sitting there on live camera answering, yes, the U.S. government, from the data I have in this official Pentagon office, has had in its possession crashed UFOs for decades. You think that's going to pass without a ripple? No, no. I'm not saying it's going to pass without a ripple. I'm just saying. That the it doesn't look to me as if the amount of media coverage is going to be that much. It's going to be fairly modest. Now, now we're saying media coverage of it live. I'm talking live. And in terms of how much coverage it gets afterwards, well, that depends upon what he has to say. Yeah, of course. Plenty of that. All right. And so, the interesting thing about this, Warner could have could have preempted this, called the hearing the moment that he learned that Comer was going to make this maneuver. But he didn't. Well, that would be kind uh, of you know kicking sand in the other guy's face if you really want to be nonpartisan. Yeah, it wouldn't look good. It would have been so. Uh, yeah, it, been, it would have been a good. cheap shot. And I'm so glad. See, it almost seems to me, Stephen, from our conversations, that we have a two-tier Congress about all the stuff people think are important. They're all crazy over on the House side. But the things that we know are crucially important to the future of the human species, they're really on the same page quietly. Not Well, there is no, of course, in politics. They're acting like adults as opposed to children. I know. I know. This is one of the most important things that's emerging from what has been happening, and I've talked about it in countless interviews, is that it is clear this issue is nonpartisan. It's remaining nonpartisan. But what happened with respect to Comer was not so much partisan. It was more like, look, the House of Representatives is uh, important too, and we need to be involved. And in the in the in the subcommittee, the, the oversight committee per se doesn't seem like the logical place, but it's a subcommittee, and the subcommittee is is in areas that are relevant. Okay, so it's all right. So Warner chose not to to do anything there. Fine. Um, now he he has two possibilities at this point. One is he simply allows all of the press to unfold in the next 30 days. A lot of it will be positive for the, for the House, but it will also generate a lot more interest in the subject and build the anticipation for the Senate hearing to come. And Crush will be the opening act. You know what the opening act is. It gets everybody worked up. It gets them excited. It gets them <laughs> in the mind. And the big star comes out, and bingo, everybody goes nuts. We okay. used to be the opening act for some very big names, yes. Yes, indeed. And so, so that's probably what he's going to do. If he really wanted to, though, make a mark, 
he would do something that's very rarely done. And that is he would call a special hearing and say, look, uh, we've got a bunch of witnesses. We want to get them up in front of us right away. Uh, and we're going to call all of, the, all of the Intel committee members back to Washington during the recess and hold a special hearing. The interesting the aspect of that that's interesting is that he virtually had the whole town to himself. You know, those hearings would be the only thing going on in Washington. It would be you know, the press would have the free for free, free, uh, you know, quite, quite a lot of because of the congressional about. recess in the fall. That's right. And so he could do that. I doubt that he would do that. So I'm going to say no, he's going. To no, that sounds like more upstaging. Yeah. It's not the bilateral behind the scenes feeling I'm now, getting. But the real thing is if they stall, if they have the, they have the witnesses ready to go, we know this. If they come back and they're diddling around and using any excuses uh, while the, as the campaign continues to develop, right, and the campaign will obviously take more and more political press away from this, but more importantly, it will put the candidates that are going to be running for all these offices. A lot of people forget that when we have a, a presidential election, right, we have the congressional, we have the governorships, and we have the, the total number of candidates that are running are a couple thousand. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to be basically – this whole thing is to be hanging over their head unresolved, and they don't know that much about it to begin with. And it's just going to make everybody look stupid as, as questions are going to be asked of these candidates. Are going to, I don't know. Now, on the other hand, if we get those hearings done and we get a confirmation from the president, all of these candidates will have the ability to get up to speed as quickly as possible, go read Richard Dolan's books, right, and all that stuff, and, and be able to act and answer intelligently questions from people who are going to want to know, okay, what's your position, candidate? You want to be a member of Congress or you want to be the governor of our state. What's your position with respect to that? We just learned that we're not alone in the universe. That would make this campaign <laughs> extraordinary and it would be a positive thing. But if they drag this out, if they diddle, then that's, that's, it's going to go just the opposite. And so I am counting on Mark Warner. I was just in his office uh, just, just a few days ago talking to some of the staff, just kind of letting them know we're paying attention. Uh, I'm counting on him to do the right thing. Now, one of the reasons I'm very optimistic is that, as you know, something very big happened just a few days ago, uh, something that I didn't see coming, but it's huge. And that is this. Throughout this entire last three or four years, when all these briefings are taking place and the briefings that occurred up on the Hill, various committees, the actions of three major senators, Sheila Brand, Marco Rubio, and Warner, the legislation, one of the most powerful men in our government, Schumer, the House majority, Senate Majority Leader. Senate Majority Leader, yeah. Out of it. Yep. And all of a sudden, he drops into this issue and says that he, now, the fourth senator to put language into a bill, he is putting language, he is putting an amendment out into the NDAA, and this is clearly in response to Grush and his coming forward, which just gives more confirmation that Grush is absolutely legitimate. And, and, the, and the name of this bill, if, I, if I'm informed correctly, which, which floored me. I didn't find out until the, I'd already the, left Schumer's office because the, I would have Wait a minute. The, the, the bill or, or his amendment? The amendment, the act. Yeah. kind of an act. It's part of the, uh, the Intelligence Authorization Act. The Unidentified Aero Phenomena Disclosure Act. How about that? Wow. And what is well, the Stephen, wait, wait, wait. wait. It's only been like weeks since we moved from, okay, the Tic Tacs could be secret, you know, Iranian drones 
to where there's a guy involved in the Pentagon official office is going to sit in front of Congress next Wednesday and say, no, they're vehicles from somewhere beyond this planet, either dimensional or physical, but they ain't made in Iran. Let's just connect the dots here. Grush comes forward on July the 5th after two years of trying to do the right thing, but finally deciding this is not, he's not legal and I'm still getting threats. So I'm coming forward. He has not paid any price. He has not been demoted. I mean, he's no longer government. He quit the task force. He's out of government, but he's not, the government's not coming after him. He's not and anything illegal. He comes forward and says, it was confirmed to me while I was at the UAP task force, that we have multiple crash vehicles and, and bodies of non-human pilots. That was July the 5th. Well, less than three weeks later, two weeks later. Yeah, we have hearings. Two weeks later. Hey, hearings. Less than two weeks later, Chuck Schumer announces that he is putting language in the IAE bill as an amendment entitled the, uh, the uh, Unidentified Air Phenomena Disclosure Act. And what is the key aspect of this particular act? It is this. This, this language says, if it's passed into law, will be legal, that any non-human technology, such as crash vehicles, in the hands of any American citizens and or corporations, property of the United States government, it's ours, and we want it. And in 300 days after this act, we expect an accountability. In other words, we expect you to inform us that you have this. In 300 days. Wait, but I thought it was six months. And then, so 300 days. I thought it was six so, months. Well, it's 300 days. And so uh, now that doesn't matter. Look, a year, is three, days, a year is 365, so it's got to be somewhere close to a year on your timetable. I'm hearing six months from the signing, this will go into, into effect. Look, uh, I, I, I will review the information I have. Maybe I have it wrong. Whether it's six months or 300 days, if that's not important. That, that's all just protocol. That's all just boilerplate stuff. In other words, yes, do this, and you're going to report back. That's what you do, right? Because, again, they're not ready to confirm the ET presence yet. What they are doing is building all the scaffolding, right? Now, let's be clear. Is that going to? Is that going to? Does that mean we have to wait 300 days or six months before we go? No, no. We're going to get the hearings in September. We're going to end this stupid truth embargo. However, all of the structure and scaffolding they're setting up, like, yeah, uh, non-human tech from ET tech, is, is belongs to the United States government. At least if, if you're an American citizen or company, all of that will apply after the confirmation, after disclosure. All the stuff that's being set up will be active, will be funded, will be useful and appropriate after disclosure. Because we, I have, as I have to re- remind people over and over again, the United States government knows exactly what is up. They know that they are in the sky. They know they're in the oceans. They have their technology. They have bodies. They've been studying this phenomena and the entities behind it for 76 years and spending billions of dollars doing so. What is happening now is not proving anything. It is simply going through a process that will allow the president to end the truth embargo with a minimum amount of upset people, the maximum amount of, you know, bond home, Right. And so people will be generous, hopefully, and say, OK, look, you, you kept it from us for 76 years, but now tell us the truth and, every, and let's bygones be bygones. That is what's going on. Schumer, by doing what he did, 
just green-lighted the entire Senate. Now, the House, too, but certainly. He's green-lighted all of the people on those committees, the three key committees, which in by law, under the last legislation, are the three that are most that are by law supposed to be reported to, which is the Intel Armed Services and Appropriations Committee. He green-lighted all of those centers. I'm with you. I'm down with this. Whatever you want to do, I'm good with it. I just told you that by putting that in there. So now we have the Senate Majority Leader and a whole raft of senators. We've got the House moving in on this, literally competing for more attention. And so anybody who wants to make the case to me that like this is going to drag on for years, I'm sorry. You're just not paying oh, attention. Oh, no, they're not and paying attention. No, no. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I'm about to do. Well, remember, the, uh, the, the key complaint in the peanut gallery, which are all the talking heads in the Uville community that suddenly have found voices, they're all shouting from the rooftops, oh, this is a false flag. It's going to be another Lucy in the football. No, my feeling is this is for real. It's on a very fast track. And a year from tonight, we're going to be in a totally different political regime around the world. Well, the Lucy football stuff is becoming less and less and less. I mean, the number of people that are the, – the, 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 whole, the whole thing is shit. I don't, I don't blame people for being intransigent a little bit. I mean, let's face it. This thing has been 76 years long now. But they're coming around, and one of the things I'm about to do is I am going to forward all of my domains instead of forwarding to the, the front page of my – you know whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have them all go to the same place. I'm going to forward all of my domains to my print media archives. So anybody trying to get to Paradigm Research Group or, you know, uh, World UFO Day or or uh, 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 yeah, Exopolitics World Network, all that kind of stuff, it's it's going to go to my print media archive. And then from there, they can jump to the home pages for these other sites that I'm in charge of. And the reason I'm doing that is to make it easier for people to just jump in and get more people seeing this archive, which is tracking this media coverage. This is a big project. I mean, I've spent thousands of hours with this. And so I am triaging the best higher professional journalism on this from, from, from decent papers, not tabloids. I don't consider the tabloids in the UK to be pure tabloids. They're not like my tabloids. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm covering, I'm, I'm hitting all the key journalism. I'm, I'm only probably logging in maybe 10% of the total number of quote linked articles that are going up. Because a lot of the stuff is just from the website. But even at that, it's going up at hundreds per month. And so people can go there and they'll just jump in and they'll be able to quickly follow along just what the media is covering and what the media is covering is more than enough to support the fact that the truth embargo is cooked. Well, if it's cooked, the question then is, how does it come out of the oven? Do we know, in addition to Grush, I heard there's there's three witnesses in this hearing next week. Do we know the names of the other two? Yeah, sure. Ryan Graves and David Fravor. And who are so they? Kind of, who are they? Well, well why, David Fravor was one of the... Oh, he, that's right. He's one of the pilots. Yeah, okay. Well, he's one of the original witnesses from the 2017 um, uh, article that was uh, done by Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal, and Helene Cooper that, that started the ball rolling. I mean, that's really the beginning of this whole six-year process leading finally, I think, to disclosure this year. Uh, and he was retired. He's absolutely he – was, he was a top gun. And he's going to be talking about things he saw off the uh, the Roosevelt 2004. Ryan Graves also had similar experiences. He's going to be talking about that. So these two witnesses are kind of going back to the early days of this final 
phase, final act of this play, which goes back to 17, 18, 19. But then they're bringing in Grush. Now, there are probably a number of witnesses they may have tried to get that wouldn't do it. In other words, I know that there are a number of witnesses that don't, they do not want to testify before a House subcommittee. They want to testify before the Senate Intel Committee, and I don't blame them. <laughs> Snobs. Uh, and, 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 and the thing is that you know, if they don't want to testify, they don't want to testify. The only, and there's no way that Comer was going to make the mistake of subpoenaing. Well, but it. couldn't it also be – because if we don't have this in a memo, it's, it's kind of inference. It's much better to have three very high-quality witnesses than a dozen people that nobody's going to remember. Uh, no. Uh, no. No, no. No, that's not it. They, they, I, there's only so many witnesses they can handle because they're, they're only going to be able to do a day, uh, and so that's one reason. Uh, I assure you <laughs> that the more witnesses, the better. Uh, and the, beauty, the, 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 the final hearings that bring us to disclosure are going to be very much like the Watergate hearings, or in Contra hearings, and so forth, uh, and even to some degree the January 6 hearings. So this issue is way more important than January 6th. Yeah, but they always tell a new president when he comes in, you know, you want three big issues to go through Congress anymore. The public can't follow. It seems to me someone, someone, well, I'm telling you what I've heard and I I agree with it because people are so distracted these days that any more than three would become a blur. And the real audience is, of course, the people not in, in Congress. It's the American people. No, 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 no. You, if you think back about the Watergate hearing, but that was then, and this is on. now. Watergate was a totally, totally different media environment where three networks could hold everybody's attention. Just three networks, not five million social media channels and YouTube and TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. There are still three networks, plus cable networks, plus uh, online screening, uh, and so. What, what and more than half have? of people in these days get their news from social media, Facebook, Truth Social, Twitter, whatever. They don't go near television. Sure, all of. I don't know about that. I know that people that are, they do television and they do social media. Look, the social media is going to be on fire. I mean, the social media is only going to look. If if the water if there had been social media back in the days of the Watergate hearing, mine would have been even more intense. I mean, it would have been incredible. But the point is, is that the way these things are going to be done. Is that you? You're going to have a couple. You're going to have several witnesses on day one. They're going to be mind blowing, and then you're going to have set up for day two, and then day three, and day four. And the audience will build and build and build and build. That's how you power this kind of thing. Now, you don't bring on twelve witnesses in the same day. No, no, no. These are going to be spread out over time, and and probably the most they'll have in a single day if they're smart is four, two in the morning, two in the afternoon. Uh, if they're really going to do this now, if they just hold, if if if, if the intel committee were to come in and just pull three witnesses up there like the house is doing and hold that, oh hell will break loose. Uh, I assure you, the social media will barbecue them, and they're not that, that stupid. When they start this, they've got to finish this. There are witnesses ready to testify before that intel committee that will make Mark Warner and those members legends, and so they have got to be. Uh, aware of this. They're making history at a level that's almost unprecedented, if not unprecedented. And so you don't futz around with this. And and so that's the point I was trying to make earlier. The, the House subcommittee 
of the oversight committee is not in a position and was never going to do that. But they wanted to get there. They wanted to get into the game. They're going to get in there, and that's fine. Uh, but it will be the Senate uh, Intel Committee, the most nonpartisan of all the committees in Congress, the most powerful committee, frankly, in Congress, in my view, though one can argue the appropriations committees are. And by the way, it's the appropriate appropriation and armed services and intel committees that are that are in the legislation is the ones that they have to have to be reported to. And let me also point out that once it gets going, one of the reasons why the president has got to confirm as quickly as possible the ET presence, the non-human presence. Is because when this thing heats up, the other committees are going to want in. And so you're going to have them trying to get witnesses to come on armed services and the appropriations. And so this thing will just get massive, and the president just can't sit there like, oh, wow, is there something going on over at the Senate? Now, the president's got to get in there and say, look, the evidence is quite clear. This is non-human. I'm going to confirm it. I'm going to be getting more information to you. I'm stepping into this in a big way. Once he does that, once we get disclosure, now the ability of these other committees who really have something that want to get involved in this to go get all the witnesses they want just, just completely magnifies. And so now the number of witnesses that potentially could be brought to the Hill is in the hundreds. And you're going to have hearings going on in the post-disclosure world for months and months as this thing grows and grows and grows in intensity. It is, as I have said a thousand times, the most profound event in human history. And these members of Congress happen to be the lucky ones that have a chair when the music stops, and that includes the president. Now, they're, if they're, unless they're out of their freaking minds, they will do this, they will do it right, and they will do it soon. And the only thing that could pour oil on that water is if another country, steps in and does it instead. And there's only a couple that can do that. The democracies can't. Like UK could not get it together fast enough. There's no way. There isn't a prep. But yeah, R Russia is probably off the t table because of, of Putin has decided to go out like Stalin. Fine. But Xi Jinping is the one they got to worry about. Xi Jinping could do it tomorrow. He could call together a vast meeting of people, uh, not the people, but his top people, Big display, huge audience, go in front of them and confirm the ET presence and haul out some wreckage of his own, put it right there on the stage, which is – and I've said this before and I'll say it again. Unless he is working for the CIA, <laughs> get this done. You following me? Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, if he is not a CIA operative, then get this done. Otherwise, he's going to pull the rug out from under you and you're all going to look like fools. Well, it's moving on a on a I would think very fast track for Washington. Yes. Do you, do you, I don't see how this is going to wait for the Senate. If what's going to happen next week is is as you and I are projecting, the mainstream because they know nothing about government warehouses full of Indiana Jones type saucers, they're going to go nuts. Well, they are. They are, and that's that. That is that is probably Warner's probably thinking. Look, let that, let the House have their thing. Let them kind of set the you know, kindling on fire, and give the press a whole thirty days to chew on this. And of course, I'll be doing God knows how many interviews. Or I've got. I can't even tell you how many interviews I'm doing. I'll probably do seven or eight this week. I may end up doing a hundred between now and the end of August. The point is, is that all of this. It's just going to build and build interest for this Intel committee. We'll be hearing more, obviously, uh, uh, 
that is going to generate uh, increase the likelihood that the esteemed television networks, that their their news entities, ABC, NBC, CBS, God bless them, who are becoming increasingly irrelevant in modern society, and of course the big three cable news entities who are very relevant, uh, and some of the new new members like the Messenger, like News Nation, that all of them better get some cameras down there, better get the feed hooked up. Who was who was the outlet? Who, who was the outlet that interviewed Grush on on camera? That was News Nation. News Nation. I thought it was but a interesting. And, and, and interesting enough, Ross Coulthard apparently is hired on to them. Uh, and so he ended up getting an interview. Ross made history there. I mean, Ross is a great guy. And I'm so thrilled that he did that, um, that he was the one that interviewed him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, News Nation is way out in front of the issue, way out in front. And it's a new entity. It's, it's definitely right of center. But it's trying to be, how would you say, a, a more responsible version of Fox News. We'll see. Hmm. The point is, is that, look, and then the next thing is, here's, here's the other thing. The, these news entities all have, but are not obligated to, the ability to a cook up with foreign media. They, they can provide the feeds to media all around the world if they want to. Will they do that? Because this is not a, just an American issue. This is global. You know, the, the, I, I recently learned that 1.2 billion people watched the World Cup final. 5 billion in total watched the total World Cup. 1.2 billion people watched the World Cup final because soccer is global. Yeah, hey, we, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it right there. Yeah. My guest this morning is Stephen Bassett, and we're talking about the details, the mechanics of this unfolding disclosure, which is gripping – well, it's gripping Washington – and it's going to grip the nation if uh, Grush comes through with even a pale vestige of what I've seen uh, in, other, in other outlets, including that, uh, that television interview. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, I want to turn the conversation just slightly because we've been talking for the last uh, hour, hour and a half about what I call the UFO track of disclosure. When we come back, I want to talk about the ET artifact track of disclosure because there are new developments on that front that may in fact uh, correlate or integrate or complement the UFO track very elegantly and in the same time frame. Again, you're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. Exclusive member benefits 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back on this Sunday night of 2023, July 23rd, just a few days before a hearing in Washington, which could frankly make history. Because, you know, Stephen, my attitude has been that once this breaks, everything breaks, including all the stuff that's been covered up. It's like my, my grandmother's you know quilt analogy, you pull on the wrong thread. And the whole damn thing falls apart because I don't see how they manage what Haldeman would have called a limited hangout when already at the end of uh, July of 2023, we're talking about a televised house hearing where a key credible guy is going to sit there and say, yes, I saw documentation relating to technology that would make everybody think that we had all become God. Am I right or wrong? Well, I know what you're getting at, Richard. Um, you, I, we've we've um, discussed this many times over the years. I always thought that confirmation of ancient off-world civilization, in other words, artifacts, moon or Mars, would have been a way to open the door uh, to disclosure down the line by getting that out of the way, because obviously they're ancient civilizations. They're not, they don't exist anymore. Um, and obviously, and, and therefore would, would not be threatening like a Martian invasion. Yeah. And, but far more powerful than what we see on ancient aliens. Ancient aliens is a show, which is, which is really investigated the ancient history and, and, and found all kinds of links to what is probably ET contact in the past, but that's not as powerful as a single structure on Mars or moon that wasn't made by us, but they didn't do it. I mean, I think probably they didn't do it because they, they knew that the citizen science effort was so robust and they've been going on so long that it, once they acknowledged, yeah, apparently there was a civilization on Mars once that it would just, things would heat up very quickly and the pressure on the truth embargo would become overwhelming. And so they decided they're going to pretty much play dumb on that too in service to the truth embargo. So, once disclosure takes place, uh, if there are any artifacts out there, we're going to find out real fast. If NASA's been blurring stuff well, out. It, 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 it's yeah. so funny that you should bring them up because that's where I wanted to segue next. If you look at my items tonight, you know, remember, you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on the banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under the guest mm-hmm. page banner at the top of that page, there is a fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you to my three items for tonight. Item number one, a few days ago, the Indian government 
with Prime Minister Modi in in presence in the blockhouse in the in the launch control center uh, oversaw the launch of the second unmanned Indian government attempt to land a spacecraft on the moon at the moon's South Pole. They tried a few years ago uh, with Chandrayaan-2. Chandrayaan is a Sanskrit term meaning moon craft. So this is now Chandrayaan-3. Uh, they launched a few days ago. They will get there uh, on the 5th of August. They will go into lunar orbit. They're planning to land literally a month from tonight, August 23rd, 2023, or maybe into the wee hours of the 24th, their plan is to land an unmanned robot at the South Pole. And what's remarkable is that the launch took place in the window of the Apollo 11 54th anniversary a few days ago. And today... As I said earlier, Melania Trump comes out with an NFT series around the Apollo 11 historic landing, again, in the same window, which has now caused all kinds of furor and fervor and, and panting of uh, breath and gnashing of teeth at NASA, because apparently they have some kind of a rule against supporting NFTs with official NASA photography. And she's mm -hmm. selling for 75 bucks a pop official NASA photography. Now, I'm an Emily Dickinson kind of guy. I think that we're in the total throes of tell all the truth, but as long as you can, tell it slant, which is why we've not had disclosure of ET ruins on the moon or Mars or anywhere else for as long as I've been at this. Because as you said, it's hard, kind of hard not to look at a ruin and go, oh my God, did somebody build it? And they weren't us. So what I find remarkable if all of all the people on the planet, if you were to question somebody about Melania Trump's interests, would you have imagined in a million universes that Apollo 11 would have been one of her kind of pet things? I wouldn't. Stephen? Yeah, uh, maybe it's just to make some bucks. Or, or, hang on, hang on, or... Is it possible this is part of a coordinated Trump strategy? Remember, Trump's sitting on a whole bunch of incredible super special access program classified documents, and he's got to know up and down, forward and back, everything the U.S. government knows about ETs, UFOs, structures on, the Mar on Mars, on the moon, et cetera, et cetera. But if he were to come out and say it, it would be too in your face. So Melania comes out with an NFT NASA blows a gasket. The whole idea of the moon, Apollo, what's on the moon with the Indians heading there, creates such an audience that's far beyond space geeks as they follow the Melania NASA soap opera. And then the Indians, as we're going to go into great detail next uh, Saturday night with the data, they're carrying the one instrument that I have been promoing for years is the right camera to photograph the ruins, the domes, etc., and allow them to get down through the glass safely. And it all is going to culminate literally in one month from tonight. My thinking on it is pretty simple. It's uh, common sense. 
if there are any artifacts out there, either Moon or Mars, and we have more countries able to send craft orbiting Moon and Mars and now landing on the Moon and Mars, the idea that they are simply going to sit on that information as, as this truth embargo ages and ages badly is obviously just nonsense. They're not going to do it. And so one of the things that has forced the action here is has helped lead to the point where we're having these hearings and we're going to hopefully get this done in September is, in fact, these other nations' craft going to the moon and Mars because if there's artifacts there, ultimately, and maybe they already have some photos, but they've been sitting on them in service to the, America's desire to keep this under wraps, it's just not going to continue. And so at some point, they're going to show them, and there the government's going to have a problem. And so, again, getting the truth embargo over as quickly as possible would be in the gov- our government's best interest. And then when the artifacts uh, uh, end up turning up in some Chinese or Indian uh, uh, space returns, people go, oh, yeah, well, apparently there was an ancient civilization on Mars and Moon. How about, are they, you know, they did some basis on the Moon. Wow, that's pretty cool. But it's all after after disclosure. Everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Before disclosure, not cool. I and don't so think it's going to be that easy and calm. But anyway, are you aware yeah. that in addition to the Indians who are en route to the moon tonight, get there, as I said, a month mm-hmm. from tonight, the Soviet Union slash Russia, in that same time frame, a month from tonight, they were going to launch in July. They delayed it a month to launch the first unmanned mission to the moon from Russia in decades. For like, I forget how many decades that the Lunacod series was, was back in the 70s. And mm-hmm. then a few days after that, in early September, the Japanese are launching an unmanned spacecraft that will try to land. They're all trying to land at the South Pole, which, of course, is where the goodies are in our ET ancient lunar dome model. And by the way, where the glass on the near side is densest, which is why every spacecraft has been crashing except for Russia, the United States, and China. So are they going to succeed, the Indians? Are they going to be first? Are they going to be first to announce Given Modi's proclivities for ancient, prehistoric Indian Vedic civilizations, I'm really thinking that the Indians are going to do something rather dramatic, and then they do it in the same time frame as the landings, which is in one month. Well, if there are artifacts. There are. And given what is happening in the United States, if I'm a foreign leader like Modi, or the Japanese, or anybody else. Clearly, my uh, willingness to sit on any confirmation of artifacts is evaporating. And so, if they're there, and if they film them, they're going to tell the world. And the only question then will be, will that will, that, will we learn about those artifacts before the United States president has confirmed the ET presence, or after? Or right, yeah, yeah, in the same time frame. In the same remember, time period, the, remember the really cozy meeting that Biden just had with Modi? I think there was agreement of some kind of cooperation on an unrolling, unfolding timetable for disclosure on this. There's a larger point here. Is that for whatever reason, the truth embargo, while it has been 
certainly heavily managed by the United States and all of our allies, uh, NATO and others related to uh, the West democracy, have gone along with it. But essentially the truth embargo is, is, is embargo of the whole world. What, it, it ends up being the entire world has been embargoed from this issue. And so when the president confirms the ET president, he is ending the embargo for the entire planet. And God knows what else is out there. So again, the, the, the post-disclosure era, the first two years, is going to be something else. I'm you know, looking forward to it, uh, but it's going to be intense, global, uh, and hopefully people will behave well and uh, we'll, we'll move forward and maybe make some changes post-disclosure. You know what I call the golden age of reform may descend and we make fixed stuff. That's my hope. Hmm. Because of all the bizarre weirdness in the UFO field, going back to when I was just kind of looking at possible ET scenarios like when I was at the museum uh, in Springfield and I spent that incredible night with Betty and Barney Hill and I was looking at the Air Force reporting that sightings in the Midwest in the same time frame were misidentified constellation of Orion. I made the decision way back then that if I was going to get any information on this extraordinary possibility, it was not going to be by UFOs. And nothing I have seen in the last decades, you know, 40 years, has disabused me of the idea that truth would come through the UFO doorway. That's why when artifacts, when ruins, when the, uh, you know, the remains of ancient cultures across the solar system presented itself on NASA data and other nations unmanned spacecraft data. I really gravitated toward that because the, in, in my cliched expression, the artifacts stand still. Once we yeah. identify that they're there, no one can say they're not there because too many people privately these days can, for 70, the, the Indian mission costs 77 million. Pocket change for a billionaire like Harlan Smith or whatever. So if anybody privately wants to verify what some government says is on the moon, it's trivial economically and technological wise now to verify it independently with no dominant central control. So the artifacts is the loose cannon. The, the godsend is once we find the archives or the libraries or the information repositories or any of them, surely of a billion robots that are lying around on the moon surface or in, in, you know, spaces underneath where the meteor destruction is not reached yet, that's going to open up an incredible panoply of not just solar system history, but galactic history that conceivably with video could go back billions of years. No, um, that's a possibility. Uh, I understand why you made the choice you made. Uh, it was a reasonable choice, but it turns out that the truth embargo, they were quite serious about it. Uh, and they were not going to allow anything to undermine or threaten that embargo. Well, I, I, and, I think what I'm arguing, Stephen, is not that, because I totally acknowledge that, that from my naive early days that all we had to do was push enough properly and get Bell's audience to flood NASA with faxes and we would get ultimately right. what's, what's out there. I was disabused fairly early on of that naive presumption. However, once you've crossed the Rubicon of disclosure, once yeah. people acknowledge 
oh, my God, we're not the only game in town. The game you can trust is not E.T. showing up on the White House lawn or doing press conferences at the U.N. It's going to be the damn archives, the libraries in the ruins, because they will not have been touched. Again, if there's archives in the ruins, that's something. I'm, I'm, I, I, it's, that's beyond my – that's outside my zone of, <laughs> of, of expertise. But I do know this, that there's post-disclosure in terms of what you're going to have. You're going to have billions of people wanting to be fed information. <laughs> and the governments are going to be like the giant dog with a billion puppies trying to get in there and get, get their mouth on a teat and get information. And so they're going to have to get stuff out. They're going to have to keep feeding stuff out to keep people comfortable. And the artifact thing is, is a safe play. If they've got information, if they've got confirmation of that, then providing that will be very cool. People will really be excited about it. It will generate a whole area of study, uh, essentially exogeology. And, 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 and there's a lot to learn there. And who knows? I mean, there may be some extraordinary things. And so the idea that they might sit on that, no, I think that'll come out pretty fast. Uh, so NASA will suddenly come up with the photos that haven't been. Uh, well, remember, in, in in the middle of the end game of the election for president in the in the fall of 2024, Elon Musk is proposing technologically to take nine artist tourists on a private journey into lunar orbit. For several days within a couple hundred miles and then back home, not landing, but looking down on the surface from an orbit that will last many, you know, they will fly over all kinds of astonishing stuff. If the Indians and their polarizing camera is the public face of how do you look at this stuff, how do you see it, every one of those nine artists with their smartphones can put a filtering, you know, polarizing filter on the camera and take photographs of the ruins and tweet them back in real time as real time video from Musk's Starship spacecraft orbiting the moon. And that's like a year and a half again from tonight, maybe. Yeah, uh, look, if I'm if I'm one of the early managers of the Truth Embargo NJ Twelvers, going back to days of Eisenhower and Truman, somebody told me in about just one lifespan. You're going to have billionaires building rockets to take civilians to Mars. And I would have said, well, <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that we'll probably have ended the truth embargo by then. Well, no, they haven't. But the fact that, that we now are in a position where someone like Elon Musk could even consider doing that and people don't think he's crazy is another reason why this truth embargo has got to end. It is so, so beyond its shelf life. It's really just a giant embarrassment, and ending it will be a, a really cool thing. It will bring a lot of a lot of pleasure and joy to people and make a whole lot of people's political careers. And so now the upside is just way beyond the downside uh, of ending it, and that's why it'll end. You know, it's almost a simple equation. Okay, I want to ask you a very practical and philosophical question all in one, okay? Because I've done a lot of thinking about this, and I don't have any – really firm answers. One of the reasons for the delay, indefinite delay, of disclosure of extraterrestrials, extraordinary technology, hyperdimensional physics, free energy, 
unlimited lifespans, the, the end of cancer, the change radically of the practical, you know, mercantile world in which we live is all of the physics and technologies that will inevitably come with disclosure that we're not the only guys on the block. How do you foresee the planning, foreshadowing, thinking around how we have a soft landing economically as opposed to a hard landing where we're not terrified of ET invaders, we're terrified of the complete you know, non-usability of coal and oil, et cetera, et cetera, and an AI that makes any of our current efforts uh, seem like ludicrous child's play by comparison. In other words, how do they plan to manage this transition, or are they so dumb as to think that people will just accept it without a hiccup? Well, first of all, I think the the the, the amount of things they're going to jump out of the box is being overestimated. I think it's going to be funny. It's going to be pretty cool, but it's being overestimated. Wait, 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 wait. Let's start with anti-gravity. If anti-gravity is revealed as a real technology, you can you can make it and market it. Don't you think that there's going to be an incredible race to be the first private corporation, Musk, to develop anti-gravity aircraft and spacecraft and trucks and ocean liners and trains, and it will completely transform the economics of carrying things around the planet, the so-called supply chain problem? Again, let me – you're getting ahead of me here. I'm simply saying that overall, the amount of things going to jump out of – Pandora's box is being overestimated. That doesn't mean it's going to be pretty cool. It is going to be pretty cool. The second point, though, is this. They've had decades and decades to anticipate this. They, they have been planning and gaming this for a long time. Good point. I, very, I very, very good I point. Excellent. You, yeah, I actually mentioned this a number, a number of shows. Is that I have a source that I trust that told me years ago in the early 90s, right about the time that, very much right around the time that Rockefeller approached the Clinton administration, this would have been March of 2000, yeah, that March, that same time frame, 93, March 93, the, the DOD put out a very big ultra-classified project to the top public relations firm in, in, L, in Washington, D.C., may still be, Hill and Knowlton. And so this is like a multi-multi-million dollar classified Project. What was the project? Public relations firm. Analyze and consider and game out all the ways that disclosure of the ET presence could take place. Right. You know, this approach, that approach, and how that would work, not work, whatever. And just game out the disclosure process. And then also game out how the various ways that post-disclosure would unfold. Uh, what are and, 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 and rate them in the base of optimization for how the government's perceived and so forth. In other words, what they do with political campaigns and so many other things, they've got the supercomputers to do this. And so do all and get back to us. And well, they spent millions of dollars, and I think they got the they got the, res, the results back from Illinois in the late nineties. Okay, fine. No. So at least it's right there. That was the late nineties. They have had decades to run simulations and gaming on this. So they have a pretty good idea of what to expect. Plus they know what they have. They know what's going to come forward. We don't. Uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of confident that 
there's going to be relatively a controlled process post-disclosure. Now, the question is... Wait, wait, you really think it can be controlled? A relatively controlled process. I see it as a free-fire zone with anything goes. Well, I mean, there's a big big gap between relatively controlled and free-fire zone. The government will have a lot of ability to manage the post-disclosure world, and I'm sure they're going to do that. But by the same token, we now have power that we certainly didn't have even 20 years ago to push back. And so if they if they try to handle the post-disclosure world, which is not satisfactory, given the fact that now everything is out in the open and there's going to be no no resistance uh, by the media or, or even academia, the, the people's word will be will be heard, meaning, look, uh-uh, we're not going for that. We're not going to settle for that. That's not acceptable. Uh, we, we want to go a different way. And so there will be some back and forth that's going to go on. Uh, and how intense that will be, I don't know. It depends on how entrenched the government wants to be post-disclosure. Look, let's just take one thing. Well, wait, wait. you say they've been gaming this for decades, and I totally agree with you. Under any scenario, you know, it's kind of like there's no controlling this past a certain point. Again, I don't know what no controlling it is. I know this. that How do you prevent a free energy technology from coming to Walmart and making every coal mine, every nuke plant, every oil well, you know, huge swaths of the geopolitical situation, particularly Russia, which is dependent on oil, completely obsolete for, you know, 15, 20 bucks at, at, at Kmart? Well, well, first of all, that wouldn't be a bad thing. And secondly, it's not going to happen. It would be shattering for the for the market. No, no, it wouldn't be. Look, these these technologies that they've worked on and have whatever they have. Well, if if some of it gets revealed, it's game changing, paradigm shifting. Great. We need new technology, but it's not like oh, in six months. All of that's in play. No, it will take years to put some of this technology into appropriate use, just like it took years and years and years to get the electric car industry somewhere. And so they're and and and, and they've already been gaming out how they might deal with the upheaval. The business world will make adjustments. Money will be shifted. Investments will change. Uh, in other words, it's a lot more likely. It's much more likely to be organized and appropriate than, say, when the car came along in the ni- early 19th, 20th century. You know, suddenly there's a car, and all the, the the people with horse and buggies are looking around, going, "I don't think my future looks good right now." Uh, there was no, no no nothing organized about it. It was just, "Hey, this is it. This is we." They've had the opportunity to plan how to integrate these new technologies if they have them, and how. how uh, how to recommend dealing with them. And we have, and for every negative that one of these techs has, there's a positive. By and large, we really need these technologies and the benefits are enormous. And so it, are they disruptive? Yeah. But hell, this idea of, of moving forward with, with new technologies that are disruptive, that have benefits, that's been going on for the entire 20th century and most in the 21st century. Okay, we are literally within 30 seconds of the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Stephen Bassett. We're going to be joined in the last hour on the other side of midnight with uh, Robert Morningstar, our in-house civilian intelligence analyst, who has been spending just as much time as Stephen and I have over years thinking about what happens when we get pregnant. You're on the other side of midnight. 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and boy, are we about to get pregnant. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It's now Monday morning here in the land of enchantment on the Sunday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Um, Stephen, before we bring on Robert, I want to ask you a very, to me, a very personal question, because I've had to go through this over the last several weeks myself. How does it feel? I want you to talk strictly from the heart. How does it feel to have spent so many years, so many decades, pushing this rock uphill and finally seeing the the next step, the, the fork in the road, the next plateau, the next takeoff point, literally within sight, potentially as early as next Wednesday? There's no question. I'm starting to get emotional. Um, uh, it would probably be more so, but I just finished moving into back into the National Press Building. It was a massive undertaking. I had to do it myself. Uh, I'm just exhausted. Uh, it's hot. Uh, so it's been intense five or six days. But um, when I was up on the hill, just the, you know, at least for three days there, visiting all these offices, talking to these kids. I say kids. You know, most of them are in their 20s that are working the front. I remember when uh, we were I, kids like that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. And, 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 and clueless. Um, I was getting pretty excited. And then, and there was one, one uh, uh, staffer when I sort of told her, I said, I envy you uh, because of your youth, not because, gee, I want to be young again, right? If I was young again, I'd make the same probably damn mistakes I made the first time. But because I know what she's going to see, I know kind of what the world is going to be like, and she's going to spend decades in that world. And she got pretty moved by that, as I did. Uh, it's going to grow. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to be feeling, if I can get in the hearing room on Wednesday. Do you, do you uh, know the time of it? Oh, yeah. It starts at 10 a.m. Eastern. So it's morning. Okay, Eastern. Okay. That's right. It's 8 o'clock I'm my time. Here, huh? And I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to be emotional. 
we are approaching the end. I made it. I'm going to be thinking about all the people who have seen, you know, the mountaintop, but they didn't make it there with us. Uh, and I'm going to be feeling emotional about that. Um, and there's been a lot. Yeah, I think about so that a lot. Made it, and uh, uh, you made it. Uh, so this is a big deal. It is. And well, I made it courtesy of Robin, because if Robin hadn't come into my life 20-some years ago, I wouldn't be on this microphone tonight. And I think about yeah. that every single day. There are a lot of people that should be here. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, that is going to be on my mind uh, as this thing unfolds. Um, I I have a lot of plans. Uh, I'm, I'm working with a contact in the desert conference. Uh, I'm going to help make that the pre- one of the premier conferences. Super. In the post-disclosure world. I'm going to be promoting uh, Danny Sheehan's new think tank, uh, the, the, the New Paradigm Institute. Also, uh, I'm going to be promoting uh, Jordy, Jordan Peace's uh, Architects of the New Paradigm Conference series. I'm going to bring that back, um, make it even bigger. Uh, and, of course, I'm going to be promoting Paradigm Research Group, which is going to become a think tank. I, my, I consider – my life has always been, for the last 25, six years, and for the rest of my life, it's not been about making a lot of money or getting famous. Uh, it's about serving. If, if there's some money and some fame that comes with it, that's great. But, no, I, I got in this to serve. I serve. I'll, I am of service, right? <laughs> you know, if we want to get into Kino Reeves territory. Well, remember, Stephen, what you and I—what you and I have said all these years—it's not about disclosure. It's what happens the day after when we all get to fight about what the hell does this mean? And it's nothing less than the foundation and future of the human race itself. Nothing smaller. You want it? One of the series of books that affected me the most in science fiction when I was young, this was a teenager, was Asimov's Foundation series. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not a huge connection, but the, the initial weeks, months, years of the post-disclosure world is going to be the foundation for the future of the human race, which absolutely has got to change course. Uh, and we are either going to shape it and build it the way it should be done, or we won't. And but we'll never have more uh, energy and attention to the idea of reform, post disclosure, than than before. It's never been anything like that. And then, of course, there is the idea of open contact. I think open contact's two years out, uh, and the idea of being alive for that. Uh, and by open contact, I'm not. I'm talking about there's exchanges going on, there's communication going on between us, and we are being informed about it. If there's been non-open contact like that in the past, well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that, and that'll be a public relations issue. But well, wait, wait, there's a whole bunch of people, civilians, Stephen, who for decades have said they were in contact with ETs, and very few people, relatively speaking, have believed them. All of those claims, all of those people are suddenly going to get their day in the spotlight. Well, that's the point that I was making earlier. As I was going and look, going through my, you know, setting up my office with all the books and all the tapes. Some of these tapes go back 35 years. We're talking uh, VHS, and I'm reading some of the things and just being reminded of the vast, I mean, vast amount of work 
Yes. And material that was created by civilians, just civilians outside the government uh, 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 on this subject, trying to get to it, understand it, talk about it, lecture about it, make docs about it. Huge amount of work that the government simply denied as anything relevant at all. Uh, and, And disclosure. When disclosure is confirmed, one of the first things I'm going to say to anybody who's listening in government is that you do know that the vast majority of all of that research, books, documentaries, lectures, is valid. To say nothing of the suppressed technologies, because I don't think it's going to be a matter of it being revealed. It's going to be a matter of what's in the closet being allowed to come out. So it's Well, that's on the government side. But I, I'm trying to make a different point. I'm trying to make the point that – Well, I was thinking more privately right. because there's a lot of very bright people that know that the basis of the ET technology is hyperdimensional physics, starting way back with Kozarev, and they're not going to be left on the, on the sidelines. No, 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 no. no. Uh, again, again, I, I'm hoping nobody gets left on the side. I'm just simply going to say that, that it just, just from a simple, just a simple intellectual statement – that confirmation of the ET presence confirms that all the most, almost all of this work was in fact valid. And therefore, these people need to be acknowledged and that work needs to be examined, right? I'm, 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 I'm sure the government has some cool things to say about Roswell. I want, <laughs> I want the government of the media to go back and look at all of the work that was done by the civilians about Roswell. I want them to address what's on the moon right. and what's on Mars and on Europa, and on Pluto, and on Mercury. Uh, Let let us bring Robert into this, because I know he's chomping at the bit. He's been incredibly patient. Robert, let's start at the high level. How are your emotions running, having spent so much time doing your research that cross-correlates with Stephen and my research? How are you feeling tonight, uh, you know, ahead of next week? Well, I'm trying to maintain realism, and I realize that well, Stephen, congratulations. You've done yeoman's work. Wilbur Allen, it's great to hear him on uh, the program. He's a very dear friend. Um, I'm not getting my hopes up too fast because <laughs> I've been through this before. I've been through this before. I could make a bet here and make a fortune. Okay, well, hold on. I informed you that between 2008 and 2010, I worked with the U.S. Navy trying to get disclosures to the United Nations, and we were thwarted because there are heroes trying to make disclosure happen and have been trying to do that for 76 years. And then there are villains who have a lot to lose. And Stephen mentioned David Grush. David Grush was part of the task force. He quit the task force because he was being threatened. So... Who was threatening him? The answer is David Grush, a member of the United States Air Force. And the United States Air Force was coming down heavily on him. And that's what led him to, to leave the task force and I believe leave the military. You may not be aware that just this week, a congressional committee headed by Congresswoman Luna went to Eglin Air Force Base because Grush has tipped off the Congress that there's a lot of information, UFO information and testimony and photographs at Eglin Air Force Base. And a certain General McGarrity 
stonewalled them, refused to give them any information. Wait a minute. Did you just say Eglin Air Force Base? Yes. That's in Florida? Yes. Okay, good, good. And she's from Florida. <laughs> Congresswoman Luna. Yeah, yeah. Who has an incredibly appropriate name. <clears throat> yes, it is, actually. And she's a... Uh, on top of being incredibly intelligent, she's incredibly beautiful. <laughs> it's nice to see, see that in Congress. Anyway, she and a delegation of uh, Congress men and women went to Eglin Air Force Base and General McGarrity stonewalled them. And they are pissed off. And uh, they made a statement that General McGarrity in the United States Air Force has to realize that they are not above the oversight of the U.S. Congress. So they have. Why do you think smart people are trying to put their, you know, feet in the river when the dam is busted and they're going to get swept away? Or well, it's are, just official policy. Are they just official that arrogant policy. that they think that no, they can? No, it's not arrogant. It's official policy, and each one is covering his ass. CYA in the military is a long-standing tradition. So General Garrity is under orders. The orders go back. To 1948, complete shutdown. UFOs don't exist. You don't give anything to the public. You are above the Congress, but this is a very powerful Congress. They have decided, the Congress and the Senate have decided to claw back their authority, which was usurped from them by the National Security Act of 1948, which established the CIA and split the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force. But ever since then, the United States Navy has been consistently trying to get the truth to the people. Um, 19, uh, February 25th, 1962, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency came out with a statement saying that in the U.S. Air Force, flying saucers are serious business. And he pointed out that the Air Force was menacing, threatening airmen and people who reported UFOs. So they've been, there are two pillars of deception in the UFO issue. The CIA, which arrogated to itself complete authority over the issue, and the United States Air Force, which has worked hand in glove with them. Once disclosure is exposed, it's been done. We all know. So what's been having, happening for the last 76 years? Who's been lying to us? The CIA, the U.S. Air Force, <laughs> and establishment science, okay? The cornerstones of science are going to collapse. They are going to fall. Evolutionary theory is going to fall on its face. Darwinism is going to see its end, okay? I agree. So, thank you. We, and we've never had this conversation, but I no, agree. No, no, we haven't. But here's another thing. You know, I really hope that the scenario that Stephen has drawn out, hopes for, I really hope that it comes true. But I have to pour a little cold water on it. Again, I said I'm trying to be a realist. I'm not, I'm not sure you know about this but I'm going to read you something from The Hill. When you say The Hill, you mean the newspaper, the official the newspaper, capital the Hill. Hill. Okay, okay, good, good. Okay. okay. Uh, Stephen gave a great description of the NDAA and Charles Schumer's uh, amendment and all of that and the hope that once this 
NDAA gets passed uh, and signed, that the whole game is over, the jig is up, as I like to say. However, just this week, I'm going to read you this. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday the House passed version of the National Defense Authorization Act is never getting to the president's desk. What you've seen from an extreme group of Republicans is to put forward a set of amendments that try to mix domestic social debates with the security needs of our nation, Sullivan told Jake Tapper on the State of the Nation. He's saying that because of the admixture of social debates, he's talking about language in there that's trying to deviate yeah, the well-known the well-known cultural issues that we're all very familiar yeah, with. Yeah, right. Well, there you have it. That, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Jake Sullivan is national security advisor, and he thinks he's president. But he, he just <laughs> said, "Is never getting to the." Well, my betting would be it won't either, because what will happen is it will go to conference, and the serious Republicans will quietly support the UFO parts of it. The other parts right. will get dropped. And it will come out sometime in the late fall as a as a document agreed on by both the House and Senate per the Constitution, and the president will sign it. And my, my prediction is all the UFO stuff, all the ET stuff will basically survive unscathed because as Stephen has documented, there's this remarkable, robust, bilateral, nonpartisan unanimity on the part of people who are so frivolous in public but when they get to this stuff, they're suddenly deadly serious. And so I think this is all kind of like a, you know, tempest in a teapot, a soap opera, diversion. The real action is going to be when the conference committee agrees on the UFO material. Well, let's just hope that don't, they don't excise uh, Schumer's amendment. Uh, leave that alone for a moment. I think it's in, it's incredibly significant. Well, hang on, hang on, Robert. I, let me get our political expert in here. Stephen, am I right or wrong about that? Um, first of all, we've already had three NDAs, NDAAs passed where the UAP language went through pretty much unscathed. There was, there was some, there were some changes. The one notable change was, uh, well, two notable changes in one of the early bills, uh, they put in a language that the, anybody that wanted to come forward had to be vetted by the FBI hmm. before they could proceed and that was pulled out. And then there was some language about the fact that people who were harassed within their organization, within government, could actually sue the harasser and the government that was taken out. Will Schumer's uh, rather bold insertion be taken out? It's possible, but it doesn't matter because right. what Schumer is doing is, is much more about sending a message to the Senate, go for it guys, as opposed to actually getting, quote, uh, some legal language that, yeah, we own all the, that, that material. I mean, they can, they, can, they can get back to that anytime they want to. Uh, but uh, it's also the case that this is a uh, presidential election coming up. Yep. This bill won't be signed until later in the year. There's, I think there's four or 500 amendments. And so, yeah, it, it's, as you know, the, the idea that the bill is currently structured is not going, ah, absolutely. Let me let me let me let me venture a really far out theory, and Robert, you may you may like this. I've been watching the whole Trump soap opera for you know seven years, whatever. And the more I look at the Mar-a-Lago, you know, secret documents, the more 
I wonder, because we presented him with the data ourselves behind the scenes, how much does Trump know? How much is all this being staged so that Trump ultimately becomes the hero by revealing during his documents trial things that the others in the deep state may want to keep covered up? And that's why the Melania thing is so interesting tonight. What the hell is she doing mixing in the NASA what's on the moon that we've been hiding for 50 years sandbox? In other words, I think that there's going to be a radically different take on Donald Trump and the Mar-a-Lago documents that nobody is anticipating except for me and maybe, just maybe you. Well, I'm waiting to see what happens. That, uh, the, the onslaught on Trump and all the, uh, the, the charges and all of the uh, indictments that are coming down show you that uh, the establishment, the, the non-disclosure establishment is really afraid of him and what he knows already. So let's leave Melania and her NFT aside. I think it's just another distraction. But let's talk about the significance of July 26th as the date that they're choosing for this event. It is incredibly significant because it is the 71st anniversary of the night that the UFOs parked themselves over the White House. Oh, that's right, in 1952. And they gave President Truman the willies. Yes. And in the in the aftermath, he ordered them shot down. Well, that was afterwards, but uh, and that didn't turn out very well. The willies don't end, you know, But when you shoot, when you try to shoot down a UFO, and they found out that they shoot back, and they had no chance. So that was that was later uh, stayed by President Eisenhower. But I'd just like to read you a paragraph from the events of that night, how it started. 8.15 p.m. Saturday, July 26, 1952, a pilot and a stewardess at National Airlines flight into Washington observed some lights above their plane. Within minutes, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking more unknown objects. U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant Charles E. Cummings visually observed the objects. At Andrews, he later said that these lights did not have the characteristics of shooting stars. There was sick. No trails. They travel faster than any shooting stars I've ever seen. So Al Chop, the uh, press spokesman for Project Blue Book and the Pentagon at the time, arrived at National Airport. Due to security concerns, he denied several reporters' requests to photograph the radar screens. He joined the radar center personnel. By 9.30, the radar was detecting unknown objects in every sector. At times, the objects travel slowly. At other times, they reverse direction and move across the radar scope at speeds calculated as 7,000 miles per hour, 11,250 kilometers per hour. At 11.32, Air Force F-95 Starfire jets from Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington. Captain James McHugo, the flight leader, was vectored toward the radar blips but saw nothing despite repeated attempts. However, his wingman, Lieutenant William Patterson, did see four white clothes and chase them. He told investigators that, quote, I tried to make contact with the bogies below 1,000 feet, and that, quote, I was at my maximum speed, but I ceased chasing them because I saw no chance of overtaking them. According to Al Chop, when ground control asked Patterson if he saw anything, Patterson replied, 
I see them now and they're all around me. What should I do? And nobody answered because we didn't know what to tell him. Now, the next day, right, I'm, I'm going to curtail this because we have, it went on all night and U.S. Air Force Major Dewey Fournay, Project Blue Book liaison at the Pentagon, and Lieutenant John Holcomb, United States Navy radar specialist, arrived there at National Airport. And during the night, Lieutenant Halcom received a call from the Washington National Weather Station. They told him that a slight temperature inversion was present <laughs> on the But Halcom felt that the inversion was not nearly strong enough uh, to explain the good and solid returns. But uh, let me curtail his there. But that's what they told President Truman the next day. Ruppelt from Project Blue Book told President Truman that it was probably due to a temperature inversion. And that's where even the President of the United States has been misled since, well, even earlier than 1952. I think uh, Eisenhower was the only one that had the uh, status to gravitate. So without getting down in the weeds, because people can read all this stuff, you have all kinds of links. I want you to go through your links, you know, before we end the show. But but I want to say one thing. Sure. And let me remember what it was. See, this is why I interrupt because I don't remember. Uh, It'll come back. Are you saying that that Comer deliberately picked the 26th as the anniversary of the 1952 UFOs over Washington flap? Oh, I, I have no doubt about their, their knowledge of this. And, you know, these people like anniversaries like you were talking well, about. Well, yeah, of course. So I think it is very extremely. Oh, it, it can't be coincident. Remember, in politics, okay. FDR told us there are no such things as coincidences. A yeah, full, a, for a, to a, a live televised hearing by someone like Rush and others on this subject next week on the 26th cannot be a political coincidence. Can't. Right. Right. Well, let me go quickly through my items. Item number one is an article that came out in the UK Mirror. And uh, Robert is not being run down by a truck. No, this is the sound of New York City on Saturday nights. And I like to call my reports the sounds of New York City news. (laughs) And now you know why. The sirens will be here shortly. Um, This article is from the Mirror. And it says newly released U.S. government this file. This is a major British newspaper, uh, right. tablet. Or bizarre link. Now here's here's the, the weird, the weirder. Newly released U.S. government file forms bizarre link between JFK assassination and flying saucers. President Biden recently made public previously top secret documents relating to the murder of JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald and flying saucers spotted from a train going through the Soviet Union. Now, this document, I found this document 20 years ago. I've known about Senator Richard Russell's trip through the Soviet Union on the Transcaucasus rail line. Uh, And while he was on the train, he looked out the window and he saw three UFOs. Wait a minute, Richard Russell was chairman of a crucial, powerful congressional committee. Yes, I, I have all of that in, in my items. Uh, when I saw his name and, and reviewed his background, he was quite a powerful man. He was, during World War II, he led a congressional delegation that traveled extensively to investigate the quality and effectiveness of war materials under combat conditions going to Europe. 
and I put my note there, note that mission must certainly have included investigating Foo Fighters. Senator Russell chaired the Armed Services Committee during two major wars yes, from 1953 yes. and from 55 to uh, 69, was instrumental in boosting the defense budget. Now, John F. Kennedy was elected to the Senate in 1952, and as you know from my previous reports, he was always calling for disclosure. He was always after the U.S. Air Force to reveal what they knew. President Kennedy, to be Senator Kennedy, was working very closely with Major Donald Kehoe. And well, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't, wasn't John Kennedy an alumni of Naval Intelligence? Not an alumni, but a member of Naval Intelligence. That's what I mean. You know, he was... Yes. Well, so again, if you've seen the film that uh, I appear in with, um, produced by Sibella Clare, UFOs, the CIA, and the assassination of JFK, you can see it on 2BeatsTV.com, 2BeatsTV.com, <laughs> and it's called ETs Among Us. To be or not to be, that is the question. That's a good way to remember it. But it shows that President Kennedy was assassinated because of his insistence in a memo he wrote 10 days before his assassination. It was a memorandum to the CIA, Director of uh, Central Intelligence. That was uh, John J. McCloy after he had fired Alan Dulles. And every head of the services and NASA and the Joint Chiefs of Staff demanding a reclassification of all unknowns because he and Nikita Khrushchev had spoken at length and realized that all of the secret projects uh, among mixed up. Okay, guys, we are at the bottom of the hour. Hold it there, Robert. I want you to uh, uh, pursue this when we return. My guests this morning are Stephen Bassett, who is still with us, and Robert Morningstar, who is also still with us. You're on a very historic program because next week, if we are right, if Stephen and I are right, and I think, you know, Robert's going to come around a bit, all hell is going to break loose in a positive way because I don't see how this toothpaste can be stuffed back in the tube after Wednesday. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. 
And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, now Monday morning segment, final segment of the uh, weekend of the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, Stephen Bassett, who has been waging a one-man war against the establishment, against the truth embargo. And as you heard him earlier say, it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to realize that we reached this, this new plateau. It's, I, I, I can imagine people, uh, even maybe Robert, who are a bit cynical or skeptical, but uh, all the signs that I am reading, all the tea leaves that Stephen's reading, all the open and above board developments like Chuck Schumer, I mean, politicians are not noted for their their courage. Do you think that Schumer would add his name to this litany of revelatory laws unless there was some behind-the-scenes guarantee that this really is a new beginning? Anyway, Robert, uh, please continue. I'm skeptical, I'm cynical, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> I'm with you guys. Okay. I really want to, I really oh, want so, to. so you're in the old Reagan camp, trust but verify. Yeah, exactly. Trust but verify. But again, what I said was really uh, uh, factual. Now, Senator Russell's citing, I came across it. It's a CIA document that I found in, in um, Project Blue Book. Like I like to say, God moves the mouse, I just click it. And 20 years ago, I was just... <laughs> you know, Very good. Can, can I steal that? Yeah, you can steal that. Because okay. he does it a lot with everybody. Some people realize it, other people don't. But what happened was I was uh, surfing around, and I found myself in the U.S. Air Force Library, uh, which is in Huntsville, Alabama, and I started uh, searching around. I saw a big spreadsheet, and I saw Project Blue Book. So I hit Project Blue Book, and much to my amazement, most of us think that the Project Blue Book uh, files are detailing mostly national UFO events, sightings, landings, and contacts. But I found a treasure trove of CIA documents, and I downloaded them. An incredible number of reports, because the CIA was monitoring UFO activity across the world. They had agents in in every country, and uh, they were cutting out uh, magazine articles, newspaper articles, uh, individual reports, and uh, sending them into CIA, and CIA was funneling them to Project Blue Book. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the really important uh, documents in there was the, the memo, also the FBI files are in there, the memo uh, regarding Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen hmm. uh, was from the FBI. They were monitoring their conversations. And it turns out that in the upper right-hand corner of the FBI memo relating to um, Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen's conversation, which involved UFOs, I saw the, um, a CC carbon copy for General Shulgin. Hmm. Turns out that George Shulgin, U.S. Army Air Force, had uh, become the liaison with the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover was very reluctant to share any information uh, with the military, and they had to come up with a an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, in 1952, whereby General Shulgin would become the liaison with the FBI because the Air Force was having trouble getting information from American citizens because people got afraid of the Air Force. 
the Air Force was very heavy-handed, and it was uh, intimidating people. Well, remember, so, out in, in Roswell, they, 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 the Army Air Force threatened witnesses to Roswell that they could take them out in the desert, and it was a very big exactly. desert, and they would never be found. Exactly so. So Ameri- good American citizens were still reporting UFOs, but they were reporting them to the FBI and not the Air Force, and the Air Force was left out in the cold. So they got General James Shulgin, who had an illustrious uh, career in the Army Air Force, to become the liaison with, with FBI. Another thing I came across, and Richard, you, you alluded to this. Very big truck going by his window. Yes. <laughs> they love 96 Street on Sunday night. But anyway, it just uh, it just gives you proof this is the real New York. Anyway, another CIA document that I discovered and uh, read thoroughly was written in the late 1970s, early 80s, and it's lamenting it's lamenting the CIA lamenting that because of their heavy-handedness, their discreditation and ridiculing the witnesses, they were dry. They were not getting any more UFO reports. And it was the article or the uh, CIA document is called um, Sovereignty Over National Airspace. And it makes the distinction between horizontal sovereignty and vertical sovereignty of airspace. Hmm. And while the United States, the FAA, and the U.S. Air Force have horizontal sovereignty up to 35,000 feet, they do not have vertical sovereignty because UFOs can drop in from outer space and just go straight up into outer space. And they were lamenting uh, that their, their reports uh, had dried up and they had to find a way of getting new reports. And I think that's uh, where they started to smile upon individual researchers like myself and uh, publications like UFO Digest because we published the truth. We published what Americans were reporting to us. And that's how I was contacted in 2008, 2010 for this disclosure motion in uh, an attempt by three Navy admirals uh, the rotation of the three top positions in the U.S. military, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, director of national intelligence, and commander-in-chief of central command. It rotates, and just through the process of rotation, for the first time, three Navy admirals assumed those positions between 2008 and 2010, and they said, this is our chance. We have 10 months before one of us gets bumped out to try to uh, get disclosure. So that's how I got involved with the UN attempt. And as a result, as I also met uh, the chairman for the peaceful uses of outer space, the United Nations chairman for the peaceful uses of outer space, Mr. Propriatu, a Romanian astronaut. And I also met the ambassador uh, for outer space affairs, Maslan Othman. And I att- attended a celebration where Maslan Othman received the Leonid, Leonov Medal uh, for recognition for her work in outer space affairs. But at that time, that's when I learned from her directly because we were trying to push for this UN disclosure through the General Assembly. She said, 
Nothing is going to come to the floor of the UN General Assembly regarding UFOs unless three organizations approve of it. The International Association of Science, the International Association of Aeronautics, and the International Association of Astronautics. If these three organizations do not approve it, nothing will come to the floor of the United Nations. And there you have it. The stone wall is from science. The stone wall is from the U.S. Air Force. The stone wall is from the CIA because they have the most to lose when this disclosure. Remember Brookings? Oh. Remember the appendix of Brookings uh, going through a list of endangered populations that disclosure, and I'm you know, obviously right. putting words in their mouth, and they singled out scientists as the scientists. most fragile group that would basically right. not go to work on Monday morning if they found that everything they thought they knew was dead-ass wrong. Uh, well, uh, let me. I remember the, the the paragraph, and it said that they would just be so disheartened by the prospect of trying to catch up with a science and a civilization that was at least 200 years of, uh, ahead of us mm. that they might not even get out of bed to go to work. <laughs> yes. The other thing, the other uh, fake uh, conclusion was that religions would be uh, affected negatively, and they cited the Buddhists. You and I talked about this, Richard, earlier in the week. Bizarre. The Buddhists are the most adaptable, the most ready to accept uh, aliens or extraterrestrials as part of our reality, and who is far ahead of all the other religions, the Catholic Church. Well, would it be surprising to you, Robert, and I'm sure Stephen as well, to think that maybe Brookings was a cooked, spun document to keep the non-disclosure firmly, politically, and every other ism in place? Yes, yes, indeed. Now, regarding this, um, this edict, this demand on the part of the, the Congress, the Senate, to recover what rightly belongs to the United States government, having paid for it. To and hang on a second. You understand legally what that means, what, what Schumer so cleverly done, don't you? It means they have to cough up what we own. But, but that, means, that means that we, the people, own it, meaning it's not covered under copyright or trademark or patent, and it can be disclosed and made into technology like NASA does technology transfer with yes. private individuals all the time. Yes. Well, about three weeks ago, I saw a newspaper article, an, an online article, that said that Lockheed Corporation is trying to figure out a way of giving a reverse engineered UFO that is in their possession back to the United States government. Oh, my so God. So we're going to finally get the Jetson flying car. Well, remember that Ben Rich, who was the – after Kelly Johnson, he became the – Head of the Skunk Works at Lockheed. And what did he say in the 1990s? We now have the technology to take E.T. home. Right. Now, it's still, it's still a dangerous situation. I would like to remember my friend, the late Mark McCandlish. He oh, yeah. with his life. He was he was very bold, and um, in April of 2021, he contacted the Congress. They were going to have preliminary hearings, and he knew a lot. He was an aerospace artist, like work. like uh, Wilbur did. Yeah, like Wilbur. Yes, and um, what he told me was that he knew that beyond 
UFOs traveling at 7,000 miles an hour. The real secret of UFO research was time travel. And that, that was the thing that they wanted to keep the lid on above all other things. And he was insistent that he wanted to testify before the Congress. And he wound up suicided April 14th of, uh, excuse me, April 13th of 2021. Uh, he and I were very close friends. He told me everything he knew of his experiences. He told me that when he was working at Lockheed, he was at Palmdale. Uh, the Palmdale facility and he was going to work one night. He walked down into the parking lot and he saw a UFO above the Lockheed Works. He saw the UFO open a portal and shoot into the portal. He said the portal grew so big that he could see the solar system through which... Oh my God, like a stargate. He saw a window. He saw the Stargate. He told me, I saw the UFO. I saw it open up a hole in the sky. I saw it shoot in, and I saw where it was going. Which, of I course, corroborates it. Wilbur's photographic exactly. record. Incredible. Exactly so. As yes. well as uh, Jimmy Blanchett's video from our, our experiment in the Arizona desert. Yes, jumping through dimensions or between dimensions is part of the technology which is going to wind up in the commercial market, and oh my God, help us. And Mark told me that he then saw the wormhole or the, or the portal close up and the UFO disappeared and it turned back into night over California. So this is what he was ready to testify to. And, and, and even in- So, why, so you, you say he was suicided, so you're assuming he was murdered under the guise yeah, of suicide. I was, okay. told, listen, I was contacted by Okay, I told you, I've been working with the U.S. Navy since 2008, 2010, but I've been working with another special study group that's uh, part of national intelligence for the last two years, and we've been nursing this. We've been trying to navigate this minefield uh, to get this disclosure happening because there are a lot of white hats, as they are like, uh, we like to call them now, in the intelligence community. Uh, who do not like what has happened. The CIA arrogated to itself unconstitutional powers. And I uh, go back to uh, Dr. Stephen Greer's last press conference. The uh, IST, the Illegal Secret Government, he came up with a, a good-ass ac- acronym there, IST. <laughs> illegal, illegal yeah. secret government right. has taken over the United States. It's unconstitutional. They have no right. Well, it did quite a while ago. It took it away. Yeah, we've been suffering this for a very long time, and most explicitly since the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy, because both of them were insistent. Remember what Kennedy did just days before they offed him. He proposed in September of 63 at the U.N., that right. he dropped his idea that Apollo had to land first. He turned around, invited Khrushchev to go via the Soviet Union with NASA to the moon together. And my model is because he knew what was there. And how do you know it was there? Because in the, in the summer of his first year of being president in 61, Project Corona, the top secret CIA Air Force collaboration on satellite reconnaissance, 
took imagery of the damn domes on the moon from Earth orbit with a decent telescope and the proper set of filters, and he saw them, and he completely understood what was at stake, and they murdered him for planning to go with the uh, Soviets to the moon. Yes. The other issue was there is some group, alien group, that's hostile to us and was trying to instigate nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. They were labeled fast walkers. These oh, fleet- Robert, so- Robert, you're going to have to be part of our next Sunday show with Chandra Rick Ramasinghe and my colleague uh, Ra Cataldo because we're going to get into why nuclear war would be an advantage for certain ETs and right. our, not, not for us, obviously. So you want to bring that to the table next sure. Sunday night. Be happy to do that. But let me finish it. Both the Soviet Union and the United States were suffering incursions of fleets of UFOs coming over the North Pole toward the United States, overflying Canada, and driving people in Cheyenne Mountain and NORAD. Yeah, crazy. mimicking Russian or U.S. Exactly. missiles headed for targets and the exactly. launch of World War III. Exactly. And then they would come over uh, Canada and be picked up by the Dew Line and the Bemuse Line. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they stop. Boom. <laughs> and they go straight up into the sky, into, into outer space. There's that subject of vertical sovereignty. Well, well, remember, Eisenhower tested this. Eisenhower tested this in 1959 by means of corona because he figured if he placed a reconnaissance satellite in orbit above the U-2 altitude and the Soviets did not, you know, uh, get all hot and bothered because they wanted to do the same thing, it was an extension of his idea called open skies where both sides could monitor the nuclear weapon you know, placement of the other side. And it worked because the Soviets did not uh, complain about corona. And, of course, it was corona where the CIA discovered, confirmed the presence of ancient you know, architecture on the moon. Let me tell you another revelation that came to me yesterday. As I've told you, I was contacted back in March by a former major in the U.S. Marines and a former Virginia State Trooper who put me in contact with a man who's made a confession that he was a shooter, the killer of President Kennedy. He had a religious conversion in in jail, and he has confessed. Was he on the grassy knoll? Yeah, he's the man on the grassy knoll. There's a book called Primary Target JFK by Pamela Ray and James Files. That was the name that James Files is the name that the CIA gave him after they sheep dipped him and took him out of the 82nd Airborne Division and turned him into an assassin, part of Operation 40. Operation 40 was a, a group organized by George H.W. Bush and the CIA, professional assassins, initially trying to assassinate Castro, but it became a worldwide organization for assassinations. So I was introduced to another CIA agent, a former Marine, a sniper, or one of the two highest uh, ranking snipers in the U.S. Marines, along with Carlos Hathcock, the legendary top sniper. And after he did his tour in the Marines, he went into the Secret Service, or he was detached while in the Marines to be part of the Secret Service 
to guard President Eisenhower and guard President Kennedy. But he was not in Dallas when President Kennedy was killed. After he left the CIA, he was, uh, he was led into international banking. And in that position, he knew where all the money was going, how it changed colors, you might say, and to fund these secret projects. And I'm going to... Yeah, Farrell, Joseph Farrell has done a brilliant job in his series of books on the dual track secret economy in parallel to the open global economy, which is basically being run by a global deep state. Right. And this gentleman, uh, he... He told me that he turned against the CIA because he realized that it had become an international criminal organization. And one of the things that they did was they ensured that there would be no detente in 1959 or 60 because Khrushchev had made overtures Mm -hmm. to President Eisenhower that he wanted to... uh, calm things down and he wanted to establish uh, and he continued them with with kennedy and how do we know this because Sorensen's book covers the secret communications between kennedy and khrushchev by means of letters fo- folded in the on the washington post that he would go down and pick up from a from an agent from the soviet union every morning every every yeah, every every morning yes but let me tell you what he revealed to me He said that President Eisenhower wanted to meet with Khrushchev, and there was a a meeting scheduled between Khrushchev and Eisenhower. And in order to sabotage that meeting, they arranged for the U-2... Francis Gary Powers and the U-2 shootdown. But they arranged for that shootdown to occur. Yeah. By making the U-2 fly at a lower altitude when they, they knew that the Russians had already developed... Uh, very high altitude uh, air uh, ground to air missiles, and they also disabled the explosive devices uh, in the U-2. The U-2 was supposed to be destroyed by Gary Powers. He was supposed to pull uh, a lever and blow up the U-2. Yeah, self-destruct mechanism that was standard. Yeah. They disabled this so that the U-2 would come crashing down in Russia. And make a big incident so that uh, Khrushchev could say, I can't meet with Eisenhower. That's right, because Eisenhower said, it wasn't us, we had nothing to do with it, thinking that the U-2 had been destroyed. And then the hull, Mm -hmm. the the crash was there, and Khrushchev appeared before and said, you're lying. You're lying. Look, we have it right here, made in USA. So the CIA... Well, it's always, Robert, the palace guard, the insiders. They're the ones that kill Kennedy. Exactly. Well, that's that we have the we have the files now and it's uh, very excessive. We've been we've been leaking them a little bit at a time. The the whole operation was called Operation Zipper. And what happened was that the CIA and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military industrial complex, they held a kangaroo court martial. President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, and they sentenced them to death for treason. And the treason was that they had stopped the invasion of Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that they had uh, exchanged top-secret information with the Soviet Union, and they called for a public execution. And the FBI was present. 
the CIA was present. James Jesus Angleton and Alan Dulles were the masterminds overseers. William King Harvey, the director of clandestine operations, Robert Trumbull Crowley. Robert Trumbull Crowley kept extensive notes of every meeting that occurred in the planning of the assassination of President Kennedy from March of 1963 until November 14th. Okay, we've got four minutes left, actually less. I want both of you to think of a summation. I want to go to Steve first. Steve, okay. best political you know, instinct, radar, spidey sense, what's going to happen next week? Oh, I think the uh, – I'm hoping the hearing will go well, that they'll conduct themselves well, behave well. Uh, I anticipate Drush will repeat what he has already stated, uh, but under oath. And I think it's going to generate a great deal of media for the 30 days following and set the stage for the Senate to come back into play in, 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 in September and wrap this up. Uh, that's why I feel right now. If that changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> Super. Robert, same question. Well, I feel the same way as um, Stephen does. I hope it does come through. But if one of those witnesses doesn't show up, it will be very telling. So let's hope and pray that this meeting goes through, that this hearing goes through, that it is open and public, and that this, uh, this wall of deception comes crashing down sooner than later. So I pray with you both that it does succeed. Mm-hmm. We've all worked very hard for it. Okay, let me tell you what I think could happen. I think it's going to be a prelude to the Indians, remember, who are tonight en route to the moon. They get into orbit on the 5th. They land on the 23rd or 24th. They are carrying the one camera on the orbit of the so-called propulsion module, which can see the glass and can give them a clear pathway so they land successfully this time. And because the photographs taken from inside the glass of the South Pole are going to be stunning, Their first color image of the horizon and the sky is going to be incredibly revealing, again, based on what the Chinese have already shown us. So my forecast is what the hearing next week is going to do is to sensitize, kind of like film in an old-fashioned developer under the right hyper conditions. It's going to sensitize the public to look up, look out, think of ETs seriously. Grapple with the idea that, in fact, they are not, you know, uh, standing by their lonesome, but, in fact, there is a parallel development of artifacts as near as the moon, which could, in fact, be part of the unveiling. And so, to me, next Wednesday is kind of like, if it works the way, in any way, fashion could work, it could be Katie bar the door, everything which we know is in Fibber McGee's closet. So until next Saturday and Sunday, and as I said, we're going to have Chandra Vikrama Singh on Sunday, and we're going to be talking about plasmas and things that go bump in the night and appear between dimensions, and also the first year of astonishing web information of the galaxy, the cosmos, and beyond. So until then, same time, same bat channel, remember third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And if you haven't already, start looking up.